people don't realize that this industry was founded on smugglers and thieves. And we've evolved so much from that to be the wonderful captive husbandry thing that we have now. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. We have another awesome episode coming, an episode coming for you. And I'm super excited, but before we get to that, PortCityPet.com, I have some awesome animals and isopods available, as well as some different substrates and reptile and gecko supplies. We have Rapashi gecko food, as well as I'm going to have some gecko ledges up soon, which I know I said that last time and it didn't happen. I swear it's coming soon, as well as some geckos coming up for sale. So uh, yeah, if you want crested and gargoyle geckos, you can even message me before, uh, before they go live on the website. And yeah, get in on it. Otherwise, um, our sponsors. So everyone go check out Snake Discovery. Emily and Ed do amazing work over there. You know them from YouTube. They do a great job educating the community in a way in which is not sensational or clickbaity or all the things that kind of uh, can sometimes show our hobby in a negative light. They do a really good job in casting a positive light and really getting new generations into the hobby. So please go support them because they are hashing out a bunch of amazing animals. If you like things like hognose and bull snakes, uh, please go check them out. A lot of different colubrids. They are producing some amazing things over there. Yeah. And I mean, you're already subscribed to them on YouTube. I already know you are. Otherwise, uh, yeah, go do that. And this is a first. You are seeing me on camera right now. I I'm not drinking it out of the can because I was trying not to embarrass myself. Um, so I, you guys know, a few weeks ago I had an Amstel light on the podcast, and that was generally frowned upon. I felt pretty bad about that, but I've reached a new low. This is a white claw, and this is a black cherry, and it tastes amazing. And I'm really, uh, I'm not mad at it. So here we are, white claws, and you know why? Because we have amazing guests today, and I need to get a little uh, need to get a little loosey goosey with Phil Wolf of the Neferis Initiative, and uh, I had I had all types of trouble trying to figure out how to say that word. So, Phil, can you say it correctly for me, like the the wizardly way? The wi- the wizardly way? Yeah, or say that five times fast. The wizardly <laughs> way. So everyone just says Neferis because that's what it is. It's Neferis. But if you go off of classical Latin, it's actually. Nepurus. But anyone That's who ever awesome. says that at a show is going to look at you like you're freaking nuts. <laughs> yes, that is very foreign um, in just about any every aspect. So, Phil, obviously you're doing knobtail geckos now. Yes, but, sir. But uh, how did you get started in reptiles? Well, I mean, it, it starts off with every one of us. You know, you're a kid. You love the exotic and the creepy and the weird. And you like lizards and reptiles and snakes and turtles and amphibians and all that good stuff. And you get a leopard gecko. You get a beard dragon. And it snowballs. Um, but what really did it for me was, I mean, we all had toy dinosaurs and all that stuff. But what really did it for me was I was not allowed to have snakes at all. And forgive my neighbors. They're having a party. Um, and... When I turned 18, you know, mom always says, when you're 18, you can have whatever you want. And uh, I did. So I got a bunch of snakes, uh, some colubrids, a bunch of king snakes, a lot of lampropeltis. And uh, and then I got into some carpets. 
And that's when the Morelia bug sat in. But I was actually working at Underground Reptiles retail store. And they had a big venomous collection. They had a venomous class there where they taught safe handling and, uh, and husbandry and all that. And I was opening the store by myself. And somebody, one of the veterans there was like, hey, man, you really need to learn some venomous technique. You know, God forbid something happens. You know, a coconut goes through the window and smashes a cage. And you walk in and there's cobra on the floor. You need to know how to take care of it. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll learn how to use a hook, you know. And it was addicting from there. And I just became the venomous guy. Well, in my book, I'm the venomous guy. I wouldn't say that. So what did you first start working with there? And then when was the first time you started private keeping uh, venomous snakes? So I did. So the, at the time, no one was teaching the class there. It was me and two other guys. And the manager of the store was very well versed in venomous. And then one of our friends who used to work for Underground, he would come in all the time and just kind of like show us some things here and there. And we kind of, I don't want to say we learned on our own, but for lack of a better word, it was don't do this, this, and this. Let me know if you have questions. And we just kind of did it, you know, and we worked ourselves slow. And, you know, we had cobras, we had rattlesnakes, we had vipers, we had all kinds of stuff. Uh, nothing too high speed because, it, again, it was a retail store and it was mostly just stuff on display, it was showy stuff, you know, big cobra, big gaboon, that kind of thing. Um, and then I went up leaving there and I worked for another breeder locally who had a bunch of venomous. And he at one point had like the, the most monocle cobra breeding in the, in the country. I think he had like 25 adult females. They were all albino, like tons of cobras. And uh, and at the same time, he was actually buying a lot of stuff at Strictly. So Strictly Reptiles, another wholesaler. And uh, I wound up going there like four days a week to pick stuff up for my employer. And after a while, they needed a venomous guy. Can you guys hear me okay with all that? Yeah, it's getting a little bit louder. Is it? All right. Um, yeah. If we got to go inside, we'll go inside. Um so I started hanging out strictly picking stuff up for my employer and they're like, yo, we need a venomous guy. Our venomous guy left. And it turns out that the venomous guy that was there, he died of old age. He was like 80 something years old. And then they couldn't get someone to be there all the time. So I wound up taking the spot and it just snowballed. And that's actually I'm, I'm really, really curious how sharp your 80 year old venom guy was. That guy was a legend. That guy <laughs> had balls of titanium, um, completely fearless. He had been bit God knows how many times and only had anti-venom a few times in his life. But like one time I remember uh, he was there and a green mamba was going up his pant leg and he just grabbed it by the body and like pulled it out nice and slow. And he was like, what makes you think you can do that? And the mamba's like, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. And he just put it back in the cage. Like nothing happened. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time were you like i'm going to do reptiles for my living forever i mean was that the goal no i think i wanted to i really wanted to get into it and and like the idea of having like a serpentarium or like a, a live museum and like you know a, a, a things on exhibit and an attraction setting with education that really appealed to me but i realized that the more i did the hobby for me as work it wasn't a hobby and I wound up, I didn't take time off. I still had my animals, but like I wasn't teaching the class for a while and I wasn't hanging out underground. I wasn't, I didn't have any snake friends. It was just me for, I would say maybe five, six years. And then I wound up meeting all the THP guys and gals and that like kind of sparked things back up for me. And like now I just, 
I'm immersing myself back into it as a hobbyist and I'd like to keep it that way. I don't think I'd ever really make it a business per se. That's just me though. And that's the Herpeticulture podcast for, uh, for those who aren't initiated. Yeah. The Herpeticulture podcast, Herpeticulture magazine. I'm having a ton of fun. They're letting me write articles, which is awesome. So I'm having fun, man. It's great. So going, going back a little bit, as far as like working for, for wholesalers and all of that stuff, like what is that experience versus, I mean, just your average hobbyist? So you learn a lot about the actual industry and the, the keepers and the herpers that are in the age bracket now, I would say 18 to maybe 25, 28 years old, have a completely different mindset. Um, back then it was keep it alive now it's how do I keep it alive properly? So things that were not even thought of, like there was no bioactive back then. That just didn't happen. Um, bioactive was you're lazy. You got dirt from the yard. There happened to be bugs in it. So that whole thought process of keeping things bioactive and isopods and springtails and wood lice or whatever you want to call them and, and making this like little, you know, ecosystem at home, that didn't exist. It didn't. I mean, we made it pretty. We had fake plants. We had fake orchids and stuff. But like the captive husbandry wasn't the same as it is now. And the problem is, is that the people, in my opinion, the problem is, is that the people that are getting angry at the old timers or the people that support the field collecting in mass quantities or the wholesalers, if you want to call them that genre, they don't realize what it was like. And they don't realize that it worked for us. You know what I mean? And yes, your version is better, but we got to somehow assimilate the two. Absolutely. And I, I love the comments coming in about um, Justin said that you've had that Tom Waits voice since you were six, as well as Brandon Frisella says that you are the Seth Rogen of reptiles. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm flattered. And uh, no, it's actually it was probably about 14. I got this voice and I didn't start smoking <laughs> at anything until I was like 20. So, yeah, I guess so. It's not the cigars. Mm -hmm. So. When you're when you're talking about like uh, the selling in mass quantities and stuff like that, like how, how many animals did you see come through, and what kind of things were you working with? Um, me personally, I was if people needed a spare hand, then I helped them out. You know, hey, uh, we need, we have an order for you know, I don't know, four hundred baby ball pythons. You know, for one order, so help us bag these ball pythons. Florida. <laughs> it's florida baby so like we get an order for say 400 ball python babies and they're all fresh imports and they're in horse troughs by the hundreds and everyone's like it's so cruel it's so inhumane it's like no it's not there was crushed up newspaper and paper towel rolls and hide caves and you know 15 water bowls and like three or four different hot spots with thermal gradients to cover the the length of the horse trough and it was set up. It just didn't look good because you had 400 snakes in a horse trough. You know what I mean? So I would help out with some of that stuff, but almost everything that I did for the most part, with the exception of the retail store and like selling to customers and bagging crickets and that kind of thing, it was venomous stuff. It was take care of the venomous, make sure it stays alive, make it happy, and then bag it up, box it up, ship it out, sell it, whatever. And what's like the large part of the business as far as I think it's it's really hard for us to grasp how people actually make a living in reptiles. A lot of us breeders, I think, I feel like we think that we know how how it's done, but I mean, what is truly like the backbone of the business? 
the back the backbone of the business is, in my opinion, the business as a whole. If you you have to have companies that are making products, hard goods, soft goods, whatever you want to call it. Um, everything from heat lamps, tanks, terrariums, substrate, those people are like the foundation. If you don't have those people, then you got problems. Um, and then you have the breeders that do the captive bred stuff that is in a, one might look at it as like designer or bougie or, oh no, I can't buy one from this wholesaler. I have to buy one from the breeder. And almost 80% of the time, the breeder is going to have the better product. It is because the animal is way more taken care of. It's more attention to detail. The husbandry is going to be better. All of that jazz, because that breeder is only taking care of 10 or 50 or a hundred snakes. While as the wholesaler is dealing with thousands of snakes and it's difficult. You know what I mean? And you have a small time breeder who let's say produces a hundred animals a year, which is a lot for a small time breeder. They're one person, maybe them and their significant other, you know, maybe them and the friend while as the wholesale operation has 30 employees. So like it, it becomes difficult to balance that out. But I think that if you don't have the wholesalers or the importers, you have a problem. If you don't have the captive breeders, you have a problem. If you don't have the industry making the hard goods and the, the accoutrement, if you will, then you have a problem because now you, no one knows what to put their animal. In, you know what I mean? There was a time when people kept box turtles in cardboard boxes. And like, that was a thing. Was it right? Hell no. But people did it and it kind of worked. So I think together, we all need to be together as a whole and not just bash one or the other. You know what I mean? Did that answer your question? I kind of went on a rant there because of the people behind me. No, no, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it's really, it's really easy for us to kind of poo-poo the wholesalers and stuff like that. And honestly, you know, I hate the condition that animals are sold in or that they're brought in and but it's also there is kind of a a place for everyone and unfortunately we need that and i i wish that we could have enough breeders to replace you know the wholesalers or we can have enough people captive breeding so that we don't have to import animals but we are just very far away from that yeah and i think that what's that it's way better than what it was Yes, and I think I'm I'm hoping that we're slowly getting there. So when when you were working for Underground, what year was that and kind of what's changed since then? Um so I started working for Underground in 2005, I think. Maybe 2005, and I worked on and off with them for probably like actually got a paycheck for probably 6 7 years because I worked for a couple different local reptile dudes. Um, including Strictly Reptiles. I worked for Strictly Reptiles for about a year and a half or so, maybe two years. And uh, But then when I wound up not working for Underground is when I got to notice a lot more. I got to see, because I wasn't, I had the venue to kind of look and do what I wanted to do. I was just hanging out, you know, just hanging out with my old work. So like, I wasn't like, oh, I got to go do this. I got to go do that. Oh, it's this time I got to, you know, clean these water bowls. I got to pack this animal up, whatever. So I got to kind of observe a little more. And the concept of keeping an animal in a horse trough or keeping animals in a rack or keeping animals in a a 10 gallon fish tank with heat lamp, those practices are still employed, but the people taking care of them have a better idea of what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like a temp gun. Who had a temp gun 20 years ago? Very few people. You know what I mean? Now you can buy one at Harbor Freight for 20 bucks. So like we had thermometers, like mercury thermometers 
duct tape to the inside of a, of a metal tub because we wanted to make sure that things weren't, you know, getting wonky in there. So the evolution of the hobby has made the wholesaling, the importing better. But at the same time, a lot of those practices, they still kind of look the same. They're just done better, you know? You remember those those thermometers? And I'm saying that in air quotes. Um, the the things that used to stick on the side of your glass, like ten gallon, that oh, used yeah. to like go green or whatever. To say it was like eighty five degrees. It's the mood ring. Yeah, <laughs> it's a mood yeah. ring, but it's a thermometer. I don't know. The fuck was that, dude? I still have tanks in my parents' garage that have those on them. <laughs> I never thought for some reason that came out. I haven't thought yeah. about those in forever. Well, like, all right, so Underground was infamous for the retail store. They were infamous for stocking products that people wanted to buy. And one of them was heat rocks. So Underground Reptiles always sold heat rocks. But if you went in their retail store and you looked at every single cage, excuse me, not a single cage had a heat rock. They would never recommend you a heat rock. But for the guy who wants to walk out the street because his heat rock died and he wanted one, well, guess what? No problem. There it is right on the shelf, sir. I might recommend you switch to a ceramic heat emitter. But if you want your rockets right there, now they don't sell heat rocks because we all know that it's absolutely horrible. But like little things like that, you'll notice um, at the same time, the medical side has dramatically increased. So being aware of certain illnesses, being aware of how to cure certain illnesses, that's a big deal. You know what I mean? Whether we're talking about something as mundane as properly sanitizing a cage before you add a new species to it from a previous species, or doing like nidovirus testing and stuff like that. So that has obviously evolved because now we know what to do for the most part and we're always learning, you know what I mean? We're always learning more. Um, another thing too with the importers is back in the day, you had phone calls. And if you didn't have, if you didn't speak Cantonese or you didn't speak, you know, Indonesian or you didn't speak Thai, well then you had to have a third person to translate that, you know? And then email became even more bigger and badder. But now we have instant communication. We have computers in our hands. You know what I mean? So like when, if I want to talk to one of our friends in Sumatra, I can just WhatsApp him. You know what I'm saying? As long as he's on Wi-Fi, boom, it's instantaneous. And he speaks broken English and he'll text me in broken English and say, Hey, Phil, look at this tree viper I found in the yard yesterday. And it's something I've never seen before. And he's like, how do you think I should set it up? Because it looks different than this one. And we'll just bullshit back and forth. So like, as technology evolves, the industry evolves, our way of thinking evolves. I think that the way that the track that we're on now is freaking awesome. The evolution of husbandry is awesome. But I really feel like the younger generation needs to stop poo-pooing the old way of thinking. But I, I think it's also, I don't know, it's, it's hard because we want things to evolve and we want to up the standard consistently. And I think that it is being upped a lot, but it's also kind of slow to change. So I think if you're, if you're just getting into it and you don't realize how far it's come in the last 20 years, even just 20 yeah. years, really going from yeah. zero to everything, yeah. I think maybe you're a little bit more impatient than, than maybe you should be because you got to realize that these guys, what these guys are coming from. Sure. I think another problem is too is, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of people that, there's a lot of people that breed animals for money, whether it's their full-time job or they want to do it as a side gig, they want to moonlight with reptiles, rock and roll, teach their own. But then for there's, the majority of the people, myself included, 
anything that we anything that I produce or anything that you know some of my friends produce, it's to further our hobby. It's to put more money back into the snake room, so to speak. So there's a thought process there that I don't want to set. I don't want to section out ball python people, but they're the easiest example. Is there's ball python people who hold their ball python. And they go, look at this amazing animal. Look at these genetics that we've come up with. Look, I get to watch this thing hatch out of the egg, reach full maturity, breed, produce its own offspring, live a happy life, and that's awesome. And then you also got the Karen who's going to walk into the pet shop with a Sterilite full of normal balls and go, you guys lied to me. You told me they were all het for, you know, rainbow, and they're not. And she throws them on the counter and storms out. Like, that's not cool, man. Those are living creatures. So I feel like we need to be more mindful of the, the people that are like that. Obviously they suck, but the people that are more money driven need to remind themselves that these are living animals and that, you know, we need to, we need to treat them as such. And they're not just a form of monetary value. Um, I think that this generation is torn straight down the middle because you got guys that go in the pet shop and go, man, if I breathe back to that, those babies are worth 2k. Okay, okay. But deep down at heart, they're a snake person. They're a ball python person. They love the snake. But the mind isn't thinking, I want to add this to my collection because it's beautiful and I can have a lot of fun with it. They're thinking, hmm, how can I make a buck? And mm. I think it, it, it's not almost not their fault. It's almost subconscious just because the industry is evolving the way it's evolving. Does that make it, sense? It's, it's also more attractive in the way of, you know, I can have my hobby pay for itself and I can make some money. True. and. And they haven't gotten enough experience to realize that it doesn't always work out like that. It quite often does not work out like that. <laughs> yeah, unless you are the guy who maybe imported that certain morph off the rip. I mean, you are by the time you produce that animal, you're working, you're maybe making your money back. And then subsequent years you can make some money, but I mean you're not getting yeah. you're not getting wealthy, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know what else I think about too is just going back to like imports. Um I kind of was out of the whole import thing for a while. I just, it just wasn't, again, I took like five, six years off. Um, but recently I've been more proactive with it with underground and some of the contacts that me and, you know, my good friend, Henry, we call him the hen dog. Um, Henry has a ton of friends in Indonesia, Sumatra, Java, Borneo, you know, Singapore, whatever. And he's always communicating and, and talking and we'll set stuff up and we'll, we'll, we'll we did a couple of imports, couple shipments. And, the time it takes to communicate and fly the animals here is dramatically faster than it used to be. Almost to the point where during COVID, we had some of the exporters in Sumatra say flat out, hey, listen, I know the plane isn't leaving for four days, so I'm not taking possession of the animals until Tuesday. So have peace of mind that they're still in their respective cages, they're being taken care of, and that's going to eliminate some of the time frame that they're in the bag or in the deli cup. That's going to eliminate some of the time frame that they're in customs. That's going to eliminate some of the time frame that they're on the actual plane. And I think that because of the communication that we have now, that that is physically possible. And you couldn't do that back in the day. And that's why, you know, you get a shipment of ball pythons in from Ghana and it'd be a bag and of a hundred ball pythons and 70 would be dead. And that's not because they were shipped improperly. It's because they sat on a runway for a week with no food, no water. And that's because there was no communication. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. 
now we've eliminated that and now it's i don't want to say it's eliminated animals will die it's part of life it sucks but that is dramatically different now than it was 10 years ago yeah and i think yeah everything's getting more efficient right and i guess there can be negatives to that right you can we can sell more effectively and efficiently and therefore there's probably more animals that we can sell and therefore more animals that we can import and export and all that stuff but then again um there's just more people who care about reptiles i mean it is ridiculous i mean look at look at all these people with youtube channels with well over a million followers it's outrageous it's outrageous it's awesome yeah the uh uh, one thing i'll I'll note is um there was a, a few months back maybe a year ago there was a bunch of things it was like the only way we'll stop the importers is if we stop them at the source and like they were t- verbally on Facebook, however far it goes, uh, attacking the African import or a- African exporters. And nobody realizes, but like the country of Benin, first of all, most of the people don't even know where Benin is, but Benin uh, has a very, very rich snake culture and they have temples throughout Benin worshiping ball pythons. In fact, the rumor is that's where they got the name Royal Python is because it was the Python of royalty, the snake of royalty. So you have these people that are making a living, field collecting, captive breeding and exporting ball pythons. And they're being shit on by Americans that have no idea what's going on. And granted, yes, sometimes animals die in shipping and that sucks. It's horrible. I'm not defending that at all. But like for people to think that, oh, we have to stop it at the source, we have to stop the Africans, and it's like, no, man, this is their world. They love these animals. They love spreading the, the word of the snake, so to speak. Like, it's amazing. And I wish that there was more communication on that regard so that people were a little more educated and could kind of see both sides of the topic instead of just the one side. It's very, very hard to judge as a person living in America or most, you know, most countries in the world on how someone in Benin or Togo should, you know, feed their family. It's for them, it's much more life or death. It's something that we almost can't even comprehend that, um, you know, they're feeding their families. They're doing, you know, everything that they can just to survive. So it's kind of hard. Although, you know, I don't love, there used to be something like 150,000 ball pythons imported a year from, from those countries. And now I think it's dwindled to maybe like a third of that, which is, is great. It's great, but also it's hard to know how those people are also surviving, you know, what they're doing to survive. Yeah. And they're probably using some other natural resource, right? Like if it's not ball pythons, it's some other natural resource. Well, that's that's another thing that like I I love talking about renewable resources. And it's a touchy topic because it can be abused very, very easily. Um, But I also like to talk about carrying capacity too. So, for example, for those of you who don't know what carrying capacity is, carrying capacity is the amount of something, let's just say animals, that can live in an area, okay? So if I have, you know, the Joe Phelan Wildlife Refuge, right, and it's a 1,000 acres, and science has determined that only 200 white-tailed deer can live in that 1,000 acres, let's just say, right? Well, all of a sudden scientists notice that they're doing pretty good for themselves and they're producing a lot of babies. And now you have too many animals that to live in that area. So now they're venturing out, they're getting hit by cars, they're eating people's rose bushes, whatever. At the same time, other animals are not able to uh, eat the grass that they're eating. 
or use the creek that they're drinking out of, or better yet, there's not enough predators to consume them all. So now a human has to go in and manage that population. Now, one might say that the wilds of Africa are overrun with ball pythons, and that's how it's been for millennia. Why do we have to mess with it? Well, it's not. If they're not touching the wildlife preserve and they're only taking the animals from a city per se, they're only field collecting in one little area, and they're conscientious about what they're doing and how they're doing it and how many species they're allowed to take, then rock and roll. That's that's wildlife management right there. And now you're you're acclimating the carrying capacity to be where it needs to be at a safe level, at a healthy level, and we Americans get our fresh inputs. So there's a lot more to it that people, I think, don't look into, whether they want to or they just don't know to look into. Yeah, and I think that um... – I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. Um, he's been on the podcast. He's in Florida. He went to, I believe it was Benin, and he went over there to see some of the facilities in which, you know, they take adult females, they get the eggs, they hatch out eggs and release females again. And he was talking about kind of sustainability. And the reason why, I mean, that matters is because he's actually, you know, a scientist or, you know, he's, he, I believe he's getting his doctorate now at UF or something like that. Um, Right. Oh, do you know his name? Sorry. His first name's Stephen, right? Someone help me out in the chat. Um, so sorry, man. But uh, he works with blood pythons, all that stuff. But he, he went over there and, you know, as someone with a scientific mind, I think it's interesting to, you know, that he believes it's to be, yes, Stephen Tillis. There you go. Thanks, Justin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it's hard to say what's sustainable. It's hard to say for even a biologist to go into an area and say, this is how many animals we need. This is how many, you know, deer tags we give and stuff. But I guess we're, we're doing our best and that stuff is always debated anyhow. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answers to these things. I'm just an idiot. I think one of the, one of the best stories I have about that, people are going to hate me for this, but um, I, I'm a hunter. I am. I don't hunt like I used to because I have more busy, work schedule and I'm doing more reptile stuff, but I'm a hunter and I eat everything that I've killed. And uh, as an animal lover, nobody loves animals more than hunters. There's hunters and there's people that just are fucking sickos who want to kill an animal. Um, and there's a big difference between that. I want people to know that. So uh, Florida had a black bear problem. And I say problem in the sense of the populations of black bear that were in Florida were perfect for like 1860, not perfect for 2016 when they did this uh, in terms of how much city we have and roads and agriculture and everything from, you know, the, the elementary school to the big office complex building. There were black bears, a lot of them, and people were having problems. So the state of Florida put together a tag system as a lottery. And they basically said, whoever wants to apply for the lottery, knock yourself out. We're going to do 300 tickets. Um, whoever the first 300 are, you're in. You're allowed one bear, and it's going to be from a Monday to a Friday. You have to shoot your bear in that time. And they had uh, regional stipulations as to where you could physically hunt. You couldn't just go in your backyard and be like, oh, look, a bear. So you had to go in the designated areas. And they said to themselves, all right, we put 300 tags. When we hit 289 or whatever, we'll cut it off. So if it happens on Monday – we stop on Monday. If it happens on Friday, we stop on Friday, whatever. Well, in the first day, they hit 301 bears, right? And they stopped it at like the 12-hour mark. Wow. The data 
that the biologists got off of those bears was breathtaking, groundbreaking, because now you have all these people paying money into conservation, all these people that are basically doing management, right? And the scientists get all the data they want. You know what I mean? And people forget that a lot of scientists, it's hard to work with a wild animal. It's very hard. So most of the time, scientists work with dead stuff. Anytime there's a museum collection, they killed that animal specifically to put it in a jar to study it. Some people say that's messed up. Some people say that's science. That's how we do it. And we're evolving in that thought process, right? Does it suck if you have, like, you just found a new species, you have to kill it, put it in a jar? Like, it could be the only one. (laughs) You you got to describe it. That was a that was a, a problem uh, recently. There was a whole bear study in Alaska where a guy went to go hunt. Um, they had a big, big uh, polar bear problem in this one part of Alaska. So they opened up a lottery tag, very much like Florida. And this guy went up to go shoot a polar bear and they never saw one. They're like, well, this is great. We don't have to shoot one. But you know what? You still have a bear tag. You want to shoot a brown bear? And he's like, sure, let's shoot a brown bear. There's plenty of them. So he shoots the brown bear. Well, its DNA is completely different than anything we've ever seen before. But the problem is it can't be a new species because they only found one and and it was a male. So they don't know if it's some kind of mutation or a morph from a hybrid between, you know, a brown bear and a polar bear or whatever. But that's a classic example of, yeah, he shot it because he was going to eat it. But at the same time, it gave countless data to science. Uh, but go, but going back to the Florida thing, so Florida did that study. They got their data. The hunters got their bears. The money went back into conservation, all the money. And at the same time, there were stipulations to what you had to do with the bear. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't sell it. You couldn't trade it. You could give like the pelt to a friend if you want. You could give away the meat, but you couldn't sell the teeth. You couldn't sell the claws. That was part of the stipulation because they didn't want to fuel that that black market for animal parts. You know what I mean? Which I think is great. Um, but that study did so well that they haven't had a bear hunt since because it wasn't necessary. So I think that the checks and balances, the wildlife management, the carrying capacity, that all plays a factor into everything that our industry is doing. Because, yes, it'd be great to breed everything in captivity. That's the goal. The end goal is to not take stuff out of the wild unless we have to. Well, I think – the problem is that our industry is largely unchecked or even if it's regulated and checked, it is skirted around. So say you have a farm in Indonesia. Do you know how many animals I've seen that are captive born that are so obviously wild caught? It's ridiculous. Of course. Of course. Well, so it's, I like how South Africa has it. South Africa, you can't export a native South African animal unless it's F3. Hmm. And you got to prove it. I think that's great. That's fantastic, you know. Um, but I also can say that there that this industry was founded on smugglers and thieves, and people don't realize that as recently as say 25, 30 years ago, this industry was majorly corrupt in terms of drugs and trafficking and all that stuff. And, you know, the stories I heard from some of the old timers, it's amazing. It's amazing what they used to get away with, you know, back in the day. Um, Everything from, you know, bricks of cocaine inside Burmese pythons to, you know, uh, boats full of alligators with bales of marijuana in the sides of the boat, all crazy stuff. Florida, baby. But 
people realize that people don't realize that this industry was founded on smugglers and thieves. And we've evolved so much from that to be the wonderful captive husbandry thing that we have now. And I think that deserves some, some credit. Part of what I don't like about the industry is the fact that we still have those people in the industry and they're still touted as heroes of the industry. And I understand why that could be, but then again, like I am someone who, likes to respect the law and hope that the standards are higher right there. And I hope that, and honestly, man, I don't really want any criminals in our industry because it makes us look bad. But then again, those are the same motherfuckers who are, who are down there fighting all these, all these things that are going on in Florida for the laws. But it's like people who are representing us are fucking criminals. But then again, like they're doing the thing in order to get the animals, you know, our rights to keep the animals. It's really tricky. Um, yeah, it's man. Double-edged I don't know. Yeah. It's double short. And like, I don't condone anything they did ever. Um, I am like super goody, goody, goody two shoes by the book. That is me. I can see why they did it. And it's, it's cool to like hear the stories, but it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And I don't endorse them the way that other people do. But when it comes down to stuff like, like defending our reptiles in us arc, well, then they're doing it for the right reasons. They really are. So, Yeah, I just think that uh, some of those people have turned and flipped things around and all of a sudden are king of conservation. So like, I don't know. Sorry. I don't I don't believe one fucking thing. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. You can't you, you can't change a person, especially when they're old, um, especially when they've gone this long doing illegal things for. Yeah, I don't know. I won't go any deeper than that. Uh, what's no, up, Florida? I, I, totally, I totally agree with you. Totally with you, hundred percent. I also look at it too. Is that like obviously there's an agenda, right? The people that are fighting for our legislation, Florida, there's an agenda. It's not because they absolutely love these animals. No, it's because that's their livelihood, that's their business. You know, they're filing lawsuit as unconstitutional because the law is depriving them of making a living. That's actually what they're suing for. So hopefully that gets us to a plateau where things kind of stop. I don't see them going back the way they were. I never see that. That won't happen. But I really think that things will change. I also don't like how our legislation uh, basically just does whatever they want. You know what I mean? Whether it be the commission or the state senate or whatever. Because there's something I always tell people, and, and, and a lot of people hate it when I say this, but I never vote on an amendment. And the reason why is because a good lawyer friend told me once that it takes approximately 15 to 18 years to undo an amendment, right? So let's say the amendment is beautifully written. It's gorgeous. It's going to do so many great things. The, the, the good outweighs the bad. And after a year or two, you realize, no, it was bull crap. It's really bad. And we want to undo it. Well, now it ha- it's going to take those lawyers and those politicians 15 to 18 years to undo it. But if I didn't vote on it and it didn't pass, then I'm honestly no worse than I was the day before. Because if they really want to pass a law, they're going to do it without a vote. They're going to do it without a vote. I've seen it with reptiles. I've seen it with guns. I've seen it with, with everything, especially in Florida. You know, if, they're going to, if they want to ban something, if they want to change something, they're going to do it without our say. So why would I vote on an amendment? Screw that. 
Well, I think also a lot of the times when we're we're talking about these legislations, I think there are some in which that they are looking out for for native wildlife or there's issues going on. And I think as reptile keepers, what we think first is what we keep in captivity. We don't necessarily give one shit about reptiles in the wild. And then that is and we we take the stance in which if you ban any reptile, then it's every reptile. And I don't know, I can't. I can't concede to that kind of an attitude, like a one all or nothing. Like, yeah. and you're a gun guy. That's like the same stance as the NRA. I think we stole that from the NRA. It seems sure. as though, sure. and uh, I like native wildlife. And if I need to give up a species or two, um, I will let them have it. And then I'll, I'll die on my hill as far as if someone wants to take an animal that deserves to be kept and like, come on, like a green iguana, ter- terrible pet. And we all agree that it's a terrible pet, but all of a sudden they want to be ban green iguanas and everyone's, Oh my fucking God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened ever. But, and but here's the thing. So like, I agree with you. I agree with you 110%. I'm not disagreeing with you. The problem lies with this. I don't care if you disagree with me, by the way, it's not really a big no, deal. I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm on your show. I'm saying it because that's the truth. I agree with you. The problem is you give an inch, they take a mile. And that's a fact. And here's the kicker. Some guy who is just a normal blue-collar dude, he goes to work, he has his his kid, his kid goes in his backyard and plucks an iguana off of a tree. Because guess what? You can do that. It's physically possible. And he's like, oh, my God, this is just so cool. And dad says, oh, I had an iguana in the 70s. Let's keep him for a while. You know, let's set him up. We'll get a heat lamp. We'll get a big open-air enclosure. We'll do him on the patio. And a neighbor sees it and calls Florida Fish and Wildlife. And now that guy is fined $500 in misdemeanor fines. The animal is removed from his kid's possession and euthanized. What's the point in that? You're not going to, you cannot physically stop these lizards. They've been here too long. We can adapt. We can, we can cull them the best that we can. We can reinforce the docks. We can reinforce concrete pillars in the canal systems where they're digging their nests and ruining the foundation. We can do that. It's an inconvenience. I'm sorry. Mr. Bougie Guy in Boca, you can power wash the patio because it's got iguana shit on it. Get over it. Live with it. But now the poor guy who was trying to do something nice for his kid is now chastised both monetarily and physically because he took a lizard that was invasive in the first place. That's preposterous. But I don't think that I don't think that we should exactly push against making the problem worse. I mean, we could literally make the problem worse. There's still people importing these animals, they're still, if you go to these big facilities, um, iguanas are fast. You're probably going to find iguanas around those properties. You're going to find uh, there's basilisk in Florida. There's all these different things. And though, although the, the problem is here to stay, it's 100% here to stay. I don't know if we're here, if we are meant to, I don't know, make it worse. I don't think that's a good look for us. I think that's just showing our greed. But I mean, that's my opinion and it's not the opinion of, of the hobby. And I understand that and I'm cool yeah. with that. And I understand that like, yeah, that's not a, you know, I'm not aligning with anything, but I don't give a fuck. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's just my opinion and yeah. I don't care. If, you right. So, know. so people, people are all up in arms about the iguanas and the tegus. And what they're not realizing is that Florida always said, oh, there's a list of animals you can't have. That's a lie. There never was a list. There was a list of species that you could keep with particular permits or without permits. And there was a list of husbandry requirements that the state wanted you to follow. So anytime someone said, oh, you can't have that, that's banned in Florida. That didn't exist. 
prior to 2018, that didn't exist. And then they took yellow anacondas. And at the time, you had what's called this, the ROC, which was Reptiles of Concern. And that was anybody who had a berm, a retic, an amethystine python, a Nile monitor, uh, or a red ear slider. If you had that as a pet, you could register it, you'd be allowed amnesty. And originally they said that you'd be a license holder to get more of those animals. After one year, they changed it. And they said, nope, that's the last animal you get. It's got to die with you. And that's it. But that same year, they opened up what was called a CSP, a conditional species permit. And that was for people to do educational shows, buy, sell, trade, and breed the berms, the retics, the blah, 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 the big snakes. And that went on for about three or four years. And now they banned it all. It's done. Kaputs with the iguanas and the, and the, and the tegus. Well, the reason why I bring up yellow anaconda is because yellow anaconda was never on that list. It was never a, a target species. And when they went to a vote, all the herpers were like, nobody keeps yellow anacondas in Florida, man. We don't care. You want to ban them? Whatever. Not realizing that that was the gateway for them to take everything away. And when my inspector physically tells me a week ago on the phone, hey, man, you still got that retic? And I said, no, man, I, I got rid of it. He goes, all right, cool, because you know what this phone call's about. I said, I'm cut off the list. He goes, yeah, you're done. He says, you can still buy and sell of all the normal stuff. You're still good on venomous, but all the big snakes, I'm out of the loop. I'm out. Now, if I had that retic, I would be allowed to keep it as a personal possession. And then when it died, I'd be out. So like that green, that yellow anaconda being put onto a banned list was the gateway for them to basically say, I don't want you to have carpet pythons. I don't want you to have ball pythons. I don't want you to have beard dragons. They're too crazy. They eat begonias and they get loose. And now all of a sudden we have no pets. And I don't want that. I don't want to see that happen. Well, I don't think there's any precedence for that. And I don't think that there's any proof that that will definitely happen. But I mean, I understand the worry about that, but it hasn't happened. My inspector literally said to me on the phone, he goes, you know, you've seen this coming. It's the beginning of the quote unquote is what my inspector said, the eradication. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to because his job is captive wildlife. He's the inspector for captive wildlife. Why would he want captive wildlife to go away? He'd be out of job. There's, there's far too much economic incentive for Florida to have exotic animals. I think that, and and honestly, man, a lot of them, you guys should start moving to Texas. I mean, why don't you, the, the, the habitat isn't suitable and you could have all the animals that you want. The laws are all correct. Everything's good. You just need a permit for, for large constrictors and that stuff. Florida, so many things can live there. Yeah. And I know that you don't want to move and all of that stuff, but shit man especially all these big businesses i would just take off and go to texas why don't you just why don't you just pivot well there's two there's two answers that i'll give to that again this is my personal opinion number one we're not elon musk we can't just pick up and move to texas god bless (laughs) and number two it's florida man it's home it's florida stubborn but it's florida I guess the, the real thing is that there's so many native reptiles and it's an amazing place to be as a reptile person. There's so many reptile people there. Yes. Um, but I don't know. I feel like there, there's an opportunity for the tegus to really nip that problem in the bud in comparison sure. to a lot of other problems. Sure. Um, you know, especially like look at Georgia or something like that. Like they are just starting, you know, they're just beginning this problem. Florida, I'm sure it's probably throughout a pretty large range. I don't really know much about the tegu problem or is it pretty small? It is a good section of Miami-Dade County. 
that's it. Then I think you have an opportunity to stop a potential sure. problem. Sure. I, and those I, things I, all I, the I, eggs of the native reptiles. And I love tegus. Tegus are awesome. You can have them in 49 states. I don't know. I don't know. It's tough. But I also think I don't live in Florida. So this makes me look like a dick, right? I don't live in Florida. So, but if I did, I would feel the same. I swear to God. I also feel that, yeah, I'm not going to deny that they're a problem, but I know for a fact that it, everything is blown out of proportion dramatically. You know, they say, oh, we found 4,000 tegus or whatever. Well, no, what they did was is they took the statistics from two acres and they multiplied those statistics of two acres across the millions of acres of Florida, and then you have your number. That's not right. That's not the way you do it. But that's how the statistics go, and it makes for good headlines. What's we that? also have yeah. yeah these douche nozzles setting up uh, basically their own farming operations of tegus in the wild, and you know baiting tegus and all that stuff, and making money off it, and sustaining their own population, and yeah. making sure that there's always tegus there. But then they act like they're saving the environment by taking them out and selling them, and then it's a whole it's a whole weird thing. And yeah. uh, you, got, you got those chameleon people. You know, there's uh, there's strips of like these chameleon hunting properties in which they find other people like taking pictures of their chameleons, collecting their chameleons. They will run them off with guns and all of this different oh, stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, let me put this light on real quick. Yeah, so, so in Florida, there's a whole bunch of, I believe it's it's veiled chameleons. I'm sure uh, Phil would probably know more about this. But yeah, there's basically hunters that have their own territories in which they collect chameleons in because, you know, that makes them a decent living and they're, they're selling these animals to the pet trade and stuff like that. So I, 10, 15, 10 or 12 years ago, um, I had a friend who knew of a chameleon spot and it was veiled chameleons. And you got to realize Florida's major thing is agriculture. So for decades upon decades upon decades of Florida, agriculture. I lost the food. All right. Oh, sugar cane and we're back. You good? Oh, we were so good, man. Um, I know, right? Yeah. What was the last thing? Yeah, you're good. Um, sugar cane. Okay. Sugarcane. So, yeah, so sugarcane and orange groves, of course, Florida oranges. Um, so they, they tried to do things to make agriculture better. Um, there is populations of red rump tarantulas in apple orchards. There is populations of uh, aviculara aviculara, the pink-toe tarantulas, in orange groves because they wanted to eat locusts and invasive bugs or whatever. And we have cane toads. Cane toads were introduced because they went in the cane fields and they ate all the bugs. And now we have a horrible cane toad problem. Why don't we care? Why don't we care about cane? Oh, damn. What just happened? Hopefully Phil will come back. Yeah, I was in I was in Florida for a short time and I wasn't even in South Florida. I mean, I was in like Central Florida. It just got night out and there was just cane toads absolutely everywhere. So I don't know what's going on. All of a sudden we're messing up. But um, yeah, I was telling people when I was in Florida, like I wasn't even in South Florida, right? I was in central Florida somewhere and cane toads, like it just got dark and they're fucking everywhere. Everywhere. So like we have curly tail lizards from the Bahamas. We have anoles that are from every single island in the Caribbean and none of them are native to Florida. 
you know, when you see a, a Florida green and all, oh my God, what a monumental day it is because you just don't see them. But nobody gives a shit. They care about the big scary lizards and the giant pythons. I take pride in the fact that I'm a herper and I go out at least once a week and I have yet to see a Burmese python. And people say, oh, you don't know how to look for them or you're not going down the right roads or whatever. All right, well then take me, show me, prove me wrong. I'm not saying they're not there. I'm saying it's not as bad as the media makes the fear out to be. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not as bad, but... Um, I got no audio. Uh-oh. It's still scary. Oh. I got no audio. Crap. Yeah. Chase, Chase was saying that um, Alabama proposed some legislation to ban large constrictors and take use as well. Um, yeah, the, the tricky thing there is that large constrictors don't really, you know, they wouldn't survive in Alabama, at least from my knowledge. I've lived in Alabama. And it seems as though a lot of the large constrictors won't even live in Florida unless it's the Everglades, but and at least uh, Southern Florida. But yeah, I don't know. It's tricky, but yeah, but I'm sure a Tegu could probably live in Alabama, to be honest, because they have, they brew mate. They are from Argentina, so Argentina actually has seasons, and therefore they can brew mate during that winter and everything like that. So, yeah, tegus tegus are a little tricky. Uh, they're very very hardy animals, and which can adapt to all different types of environment, uh, which makes it really tricky to kind of keep them in check. I just think it's a good look for the reptile community to to do their part in making sure that the problems don't get exacerbated, and to make sure that we have. I mean, really, what what drives the industry is a lot of our pet animals, and why don't we why don't we just go a little bit heavier on corn snakes and ball pythons and leopard geckos and things that make great pets and that we have great captive born bred populations for? Why do we have to be? Uh, I know we all want to keep whatever we want to keep, and especially it's just hard to know who's qualified to keep those things. Sorry about that, man. The internet I mean, killing me. I don't know where we were. Uh, what did I miss? How about that? <laughs> no, uh, Chase Chase Wisdom was talking about Alabama's proposing legislation for banning uh, large constrictors and tegus. Oh well, that that's that sucks, man. Because I know deep down, I really feel like it's not about the tegus and constrictors. I really don't. Maybe that's like the gun guy in me, like they're trying to take my shit. But I really, I really, I watch, I watch a lot of the Florida legislation in that regard. And I've, I've only been to one commission meeting ever, and it was very eye-opening because you have 100 people in the room and 40, 50 of them are herpers, but they don't let you talk. And the elected people that we chose to go speak are very PC. And it's they're not really – I don't want to say that they're not conveying our feelings, but they need to just be like, listen, are you trying to ban everything? Be honest. Because like the woman that set this up, she just doesn't like lizards. She started the whole thing. She's like, lizards are disgusting and, and I don't like them on my dock. And it's like, well, that's not a reason to do this. You know what I mean? But I, I agree with you that something's got to change and we just got to figure out how to do it. We as a community have to figure out how to better this whole thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I lived in, I grew up in New York in which the majority of my life, berms and retakes were banned and stuff like that. So I didn't really know what I was missing on that front. Um, but I think I wish we had biologists talking about these things and stuff like that. Instead of it's hard when you have a politician who does not know one 
thing about reptiles. That's where it's tricky. Like if you don't have any representation for us, right? That's yeah, that's not a good look. And that's why people need to donate to US Ark. You know, that's all I can really say about that. Yeah, it's like I'm not I'm not against us having representation, you know, for the hobby, obviously, right? That's obviously yeah. something that we need. And you because yeah. you have these people who just see something on, on paper. If you don't know anything about snakes, oh uh, you know, a certain amount of people keep these sixteen long sixteen foot long constrictors in their house. Do you think that's a good idea? Fuck no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Fuck snake on the snake, eh? And uh, that was a. We have a local newspaper in our county, um, and there's one woman who is just a troublemaker woman. She's a she's a journalist, whatever you want to call her. And every year she publishes because it's public record, which I don't agree with. She publishes the list of every single reptile license keeper in Florida. And then attaches their address to Google. So you, if you're looking at the newspaper article online, you can click that person's name and it shows you their address on Google Maps. So my house is on there. I don't like that. I don't want people to know that. That's horrible. I think my neighbors want to know this shit. They, they ain't going to jive that shit. So like, I understand how they feel, but I also understand how I feel. You're putting my information out there like that. It's horrible. And they, she does it on purpose because she wants to stir the pot. I don't agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not cool, right? Disrespect is disrespecting any, no matter what, if you're willing to have a conversation with someone, that's one thing. Yeah. Willing to be like, if you're willing to attack someone and do stuff like that. And obviously there are, I mean, you have that guy in the UK who basically every study he does is like, don't keep snakes in captivity, but it's clothed. It's cloaked in a bunch of basically scientific research in which, you know, stress in a snake is exhibited by, you know, being a fucking snake and all like this stuff. Its tongue. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, is it breathing? Probably stressed. And mm-hmm. it's it's difficult because it's hard to see who's being reasonable, who's not, who's just against what we do. Right. And uh yeah, man, it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. It is. It's difficult. It's a tricky situation. And I mean, Florida, I think. What is interesting is that obviously you have pretty much all of the large reptile businesses in the country are headquartered in Florida until, you know, say the last generation of herpers, right? Now you have, you have people, you have BHB in Michigan, you have Josh's frogs in the Midwest as well. I believe that's Michigan as well. And you have uh, rainbow mealworms, which I think is in the Midwest. You have all these companies from the Midwest, California and that stuff. I don't see many new up and coming companies that are in Florida and maybe, you know, this type of legislation is the reason. I also think that that has a lot to do with the communication and the evolution of the hobby. Like we talked about earlier is that, you know, Miami was a hub for import export, you know? So why wouldn't you want to be in drivable distance? You know what I mean? So many people have to piggyback shipments and, and drive hours, if not days, to go pick up their animals that are alive and sitting in some hangar somewhere, you know? So a lot of them, they were Miami or Tampa or Orlando because it was drivable to the port, you know? So um, I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, I was actually going to ask, we started on something and we just snowballed. 
<laughs> what was the original topic? We were talking about import, right? <laughs> I don't fucking know. I, I mean, here we are. What about White Claw? Should we should we talk about something more fun? Or yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm getting heated. You're getting heated. Like no, like I'm not getting heated at you. No, no, not at me. Just in general, the two, the two of us have such a rich passion for this. It's like, how come there's no soapbox anywhere? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe maybe this isn't exactly what people want to listen to. So, and keep in mind, like I'm not, I don't know, I'm not vehemently against anything, or I don't know, or Phil, obviously, I don't. Give, I I wouldn't care what most people's like political opinions or stuff like that. I'd like that we can talk about these things and kind of get things out there and not like yeah. be missy towards each other. You know, I think that's a certain amount of maturity that maybe everyone should try to strive for, or at least a, you know you see on Facebook people are talking shit in every which way direction. But when it comes face to face, you can actually have. A normal conversation with and i agree with you and i think that that's a great thing that you just said because one of the reasons why i got back into this is because you guys are awesome like you know all the crap that we go through in the day all the the work drama the school drama the family drama whatever it may be that all kind of goes away when we talk to herpers and we have reptile talk you know and snake talk and it's what we love and we share that passion and, and like, I'm, I'm in group, I'm in group chat with you, man. Dude, it makes me so happy. I get off of work and I'm like, Oh, let me check the group chat with Joe. Let me see what I, what did I miss these past three hours, you know, or whatever, since the last time I looked at it. And like, that makes me feel great, man. I love it. I love that, you know, whatever your political opinion or, or your views are or whatever, we got the snakes, man. We got the snakes. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's what I'm talking by the way. <laughs> and it's uh yeah i mean it's really like the one thing that brings us all together regardless of all this bullshit so uh i'm glad i'm glad we have this for sure i mean that goes for just living in the fucking world right there's not many yeah. people that that people like us can relate to yeah and we're lucky enough to have a community to of course relate to you yeah. know regardless of anything else and you know i've met people who, in which you know how would I ever get in touch or how would I ever cross paths with these people if it wasn't for snakes? Yeah. I think about this. I got a, I got a group chat that I'm in with someone in South Carolina, someone in Minnesota, Tennessee, Ohio, Philadelphia. So like I would never know you people, but yeah. we're together and we're friends and it's fucking great, man. I love it. Absolutely. So, so what started getting you back into, you know, the hobby as a whole, as far as uh, getting out there and with the THP folks and all that stuff, what, what started that? So it is surmised in, in, I was in a, 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 I don't want to say I was in a depression, but I was in like a life is poopy man right now. I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta get out of this funk I'm in. And I was like, you know what, let me get back into the reptile. So Instagram is amazing. We know it's amazing in every aspect of it. Isn't that like the one place in which like you can't bitch much about Instagram? I was talking yeah. about Instagram like years ago and everyone was like, no, bro, I'm on Facebook. Everyone bitches about Facebook. And still this is like four years later or whatever. And no one's bitching about Instagram because all it is is us posting pictures about our animals. And people are like, sick animal, dude. Or yeah. Not. Yeah. yeah. Just don't say anything. It's like yeah. the perfect platform. It really is. It really is. And, and, and the networking and the friendships and the businesses and stuff, 
it's awesome. Instagram is awesome. So I got on Instagram. I was already on Instagram, but I started looking at snake stuff. And I was like, man, I really want to get into snakes. I was like, you know what? I always wanted to do this knobtails thing. I'm a grown up now. I can do this. You know what I mean? I'm not a 12 year old kid looking at, you know, reptiles mag. I can really do this. And I started, I made the knobtail page, knobtails.ig. And, uh, and it just kind of snowballed. And I came across the Herpetoculture podcast and I was like, Oh my God, there's podcasts about reptiles. This is amazing. And I had remembered someone showed me NPR a few years back. And at the time I was like, ah, I'm not really into podcasts. You know, we, we didn't have Bluetooth in the car. I'll put it that way. So it made it difficult. So what am I going to, I'm going to carry around an iPod. You know what I mean? Like, come on. So I start, I messaged Justin on the team. God damn it. We were doing good. You there? Doing good. Yep, back. Okay, sorry. I cocked out for there for a minute. Um, so, yeah, so I messaged him, and, and Justin was like, dude, thank you so much for the compliments. And we started talking. He goes, hey, man, you like cigars? And it just snowballed. And then I met, I met them at Southeast Carpet Fest with Billy and Carly and just – everything man and like I, t- I talk to you guys every day now it's amazing and that it just snowballed and was that was like your introduction back into the hobby were you already in the knobtails mm. yeah, I already, I, start? yeah i had a couple and uh i had a couple i had a couple that a friend gave me and then i bought one or two others and uh and i have another reptile friend who is not he's very private guy and he was like, you know, you really should hit this knobtail stuff hard, man. He's like, just just share pictures. Just share awesome pictures. Share the knowledge. Because it was so hard for me to learn about these stupid little lizards. Nobody wanted to share any information. And here I am. I find myself on ResearchGate, you know, looking up scientific papers from 1876. And I'm like, this is wonderful, but I want to talk to the breeders. I want to see, you know, the modern stuff. And those guys, they're not the most willing to spread the the knowledge and i don't i don't doubt them i don't knock them for that because it took them a long time to learn it and they fought for it and they worked for it and they don't want to just give away what they worked for so i said you know what let me take a little bit from here take a little bit from there share these pictures it actually landed me some 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 pen pals for lack of a better word in australia and they're like they're like oh listen we got this data and oh check out this lizard that we found and i met my good friend elliot who's in queensland and Elliot, at the time when we met, he was at James Cook University doing research on prickly knobtails. And uh, and he had permits to field collect and take data and do all this awesome field work because, you know, in Australia, you can't touch anything. And it just snowballed, man. And I was just like, this is so awesome. I have to immerse myself in this because the world is poopy, but reptiles are awesome. <laughs> So now I know there are some morphs in knobtails, right? But what really yeah. got you into them? Is there like locales of them? Uh, kind of what is your corner of the knobtail hobby? It, I would say, so right now I only have two of this. I only have two species of the genus. And that's honestly because they're very expensive. And I plan on having a representation of everyone eventually. It just takes time. I'm in no rush. I got a long life to live. Um the when breeding, you say expensive in knobtails, how much is that about? I mean, you can find a captive bred synctus or captive bred. They're all captive bred. You can find a baby synctus for 250 bucks, 200 bucks. 
but you can also buy captive bred Asper for five grand each. Yeah. So it's tough. Yeah, man. Priced out of that for sure. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. And and what what is really crappy is now that I'm friends with most of these breeders on Instagram and Facebook, I hate to be that guy, but like they come to me and they're like, "Hey, man, I just produced these. They're they just start eating. They're about to have their second shed. I'm giving you first dibs. Uh, I'm gonna sell them for five grand each, but you can have a pair for fifty six hundred. And I'm like, man, that's a hell of a deal, and I'm flattered, but gotta pass <laughs> that's that's so true i guess the the one thing about when people start noticing you is that you're also being sold to but at the same time you're also getting good deals and you feel pressured and it's kind of a weird thing whether making a good decision or like you want that animal right there's no doubt that you want that animal yeah it's just not very responsible to figure out how to get that animal and, you know, you have so many people yeah, – I talk to Justin about this all the time because it's kind of a pet peeve of him and I's. Um, there's a lot of people, whether mostly younger, and I'm not going to single them out, but there's a lot of people in the hobby that are getting into the hobby. And in their mind, if you're going to be somebody, you've got to be a breeder. You've got to be a breeder. You've got to breed it. got to breed it. got to breed it. got to make the money. We're not like that, man. We do it because we love them, you know? And I had, I had a breeder who was selling me his offspring – consistently um because slow grown slow grown have fun with it enjoy it watch their whole lifespan i love it and he's like listen man i'm sick of geckos i gotta get out he's like i got i think it was like 5.6 breeders and like four unsexed yearlings he's like five grand for the whole thing and i'm like i don't have five grand to just throw it out on geckos man you know i'm a grown-up i have a car payment in the house you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it, it sucks, but you know, it, it's things like that that keep me, I'll have them eventually. Mm-hmm. I'll have them eventually, you know? Yeah. And it says it's when, when like preparation meets opportunity, right? Exactly. Eventually, eventually you're going to hopefully breed enough geckos in which you have enough play money to get to that level. It's not about, it's not about how much money can I make? And then pay myself is about how much money can I make? And then I have a little liquid here for when someone sure. gives me that offer. And then I just happen to have $5,000 worth of gecko money. And it may take you 10 years to get there. Sure. It may take more, you know, who knows? But I mean, that is kind of, I feel like the goal for most of us. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. like looking to upgrade your species, upgrade your collection. Yeah. Well, all right. I'll give you a great example. So I have been saving money for Daytona. Daytona is like my show. I go every year. I don't go for the animals. I go for the people, man. It's a great hangout. I see my friends from all over the country. It's it's a blast. We we drink, we laugh, we joke. It's great. And there's animals. How how much better could it be? I put I have a bunch of money put aside for Daytona. And the point was have fun. Buy whatever I want to buy, do whatever I want to do. Spare no expense. It's one weekend. Fuck it, right? And then I get an offer. And I'm like, <gasps> I should do that. I should buy that right now. I was like, no, no. And I could go to Daytona and there could be not a single animal that I want to get. But I still am going to bring my money for Daytona to have fun. And if there is something there I want to buy, I'm going to buy it. 
I recently last week had I'm a vision cage whore. I love vision cages. Like almost all my cages are vision cages. Um, I basically buy them every single time I see one for sale. If it's a good price, boom, take it. I mean, most of my stuff's venomous, so like I like the security. Um, and I had a friend who bought a collection of vision cages from a guy on Craigslist. And he's like, bro, I got four four footers, I got six three footers. He's like, make me an offer. And I thought to myself, I was like, I should just buy these cages just to have them. I'm gonna fill them eventually. But I was like, no. Daytona's coming, stick to it, be a grown up. So I'm gonna do that. And I've decided that the next time I have an opportunity like this where I have that liquidity just chilling there, new cages for the animals I already have. Mm. Increase their husbandry, increase their their healthiness, their their livelihood, whatever you want to call it. Because we can get as many animals as we want, but if we if we're not taking care of the ones we got, what the fuck's the point? Yes, I think we are all coming to that point right now. I feel like this is becoming more of a mainstream thought in which a lot of us are putting out there. And and by a lot of us, I mean like small small time breeders, right? Yeah. Hobbyist breeders. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about that last night. We were on a podcast, uh, the Reptile Gumbo podcast with all the podcasters. And I started listening this morning. It sounded good. And and so many of us were like, yeah, we're downgrading our collections in order to upgrade our husbandry. And I yeah. think that that's amazing. And what that's going to do is also just show us in a much better light, which I think is great. You know, yeah. instead of a little tub with some newspaper, we can we can have some cages and stuff like that. And that's something that we're working towards. And uh, and yeah, and and I think that uh, Vision just got bought out or something, right? And they're like double the price or something ridiculous. I heard, I heard. Yep. By the way, the olive python enclosure, bro, tip top, love it. I really do. We're we're halfway there. Um, it looks great the way it is, man. How much do you think that enclosure is <laughs> is gonna cost at the end of the day? I have no idea. It doesn't matter because it's for the olive. Dude, I went to the I went to the pet store. I had a wholesale order of, of isopods. I sell them isopods and uh, and some substrates. And yeah, I, I spent a hundred dollars on wood just for like two big sticks to go into a fucking enclosure. It's what we do, man. It's what we do. I felt I felt like such an idiot. It's what we do. Yeah, but yeah. I'm 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 super pumped about it. But yeah, so that's that's turned me into a fucking snob already. Uh, <laughs> It's fine you job as long as you're not abusing Yeah, the you monsters in your tubs. No, I I keep the majority of my animals in tubs. I just happen to have one, a few cages. But I'm I I just don't like clean them. (laughs) I mean, I think with with bioactive with the geckos, man, it has been so amazing to keep. Um, it's just like. Why, especially if you have geckos, if you have a crested gecko or a gargoyle gecko or a lychee, if you're not keeping them bioactive, you're just making your life harder and you're making the animal's life, you know, I'm not going to say it's better by being bioactive, but I mean, the fact that like gargoyles will sometimes like go down in the leaf litter and sometimes they'll be up. And I think that's something, you know, I think that's, I think they're getting something out of that. See, I, my problem with bioactive is, is, is this, is that, I'll admit, in the past, I had poor quarantine procedures. Um, we didn't know any better, man. We didn't. And you would set up a cage to what was bioactive you know, 10, 15 years ago. 
you'd set it up, it would be beautiful, things would be working, the system would start to, you know, the, the, the cogs were turning, so to speak, and then you get mites. Mm -hmm. And then you have to strip that cage down and use the, the pesticides that we had back then and hose the cage down and hose the snake down and all of your isopods were dead or any kind of living organism that was in there is now dead and you're starting from scratch. And it was like, man, why do I want to put myself through that? I'm going to get mites again. It's going to happen. And now that we have better quarantine procedures, I, I'm more, I'm less apprehensive to do bioactive. My other problem is I do a lot of arid species and it's really hard, man. I got like, you. You I'll know. Shit. All right. So like, it's hard to find arid species that, are a available and b i'm kind of neurotic because a lot of times like i keep kribos i use mulch mulch is beautiful they're kribos they shit their asses off right mm -hmm. and i take a dustpan and i scoop out all the mulch and i dump it all in garbage bags and i throw it away what did i just do i just released non-native invasive species isopods so i don't want to do that so for a while i was buying Florida isopods from a kid because I'm too lazy to go find them myself. And I was putting Florida isopods in there because I knew when I threw the dirt away, I wasn't introducing a non-native species. <laughs> yeah, that's tricky. And if you look at yeah. the more I get into isopods, the more I realize that like, because of agriculture and stuff like that, like none of the isopods that I find in my backyard are like native, like even the ones in yeah. Philly. They're like non-native isopods. Like how did these little, oh. these little creatures spread around like that? So yeah, it's definitely tricky in that, in that yeah. aspect. You know, and then I talked to some friends that live in Australia that have a lot of arid stuff. And like, like for example, we, we always talk about uh, uh, this guy, Matt, who's in, who's in Australia. And he has this beautiful, you know, cracked earth and black soil. And he puts pipes underneath the enclosure. So it looks like there's fissures in the ground and the snakes go in the fissure, but it's really going into an intricate pipe system underneath the cage. So it looks like it's making these subterranean burrows and everything. It's awesome. And I asked him, I said, Hey, what do you use for arid, you know, cleaner upper crew? And he's like, I have no idea. It's in the dirt. I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't help me. Like, and then I talked to some other people. They're like, Oh, uh, mealworm beetles. Mealworm beetles can survive the arid environment and they will eat some of the poo. So like I'm trying that right now, but it's not working like isopods would <laughs> or springtails. Yeah, I think I think I've seen a lot of really cool enclosures in which they kind of use a little bit of everything. You know, you have some you have some earthworms, you have some superworms or mealworms, and then you have some isopods, and then of course you have springtails. Um, I know, I know Zach Lofman, he's a herpetologist at uh, Western Liberty University in the lab. I know he has used like superworms in particular and has had, has really liked them. Yeah, man, it is not, I think that's, what's fun about it though, is that it's not figured out, right? It's the yeah. one thing that where you, you may have figured out how to breed the species that you're working with, but now you can kind of try to figure out other things and it depends which way you want to do it. Maybe you want to go into different species. Maybe you want to focus on what's in your dirt. Maybe you want to focus on, you know, the springtails and the cleanup crew and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like now we're just getting more rabbit holes to go down. Of course. Uh, I mean, that's fun. It's awesome. So like I keep girdle tail lizards and uh, uh, I had, I basically took jungle mix. I love jungle mix. Jungle mix is so awesome. 
Um, anybody who doesn't want to make their own, you know, ABG or whatever, Jungle Mix is awesome, but it's expensive as hell because you're buying it in a reptile bag. You know what I mean? So I would take Jungle Mix and I would mix it with calcium sand, at like a, a 50-50 almost. And then I added a bunch of rocks. And actually, I had a friend who went to Zimbabwe. He brought me brought rocks back from Zimbabwe and Tanzania and stuff. So I put those in there with the, with the lizards. And I had a bunch of Florida isopods and I dumped them in there and I realized they ate them all. They ate them all. So now I realize can't do it with them. Got to find something else out. Got to find something that is not tasty to put in there, you know? But yeah, it's like either, either you go very small or you try to find something very big. Right. And, uh, And that's also the fun thing is the fact that you're seeing like all these different species of isopods come in too, which is also probably a little bit dangerous, right? And a little bit reckless with the, yeah. but, um, but yeah, I think like constantly you're seeing new things imported and, mm-hmm. uh, and taken from different countries in which, you know, originally we had all these, we had all these uh, isopods like Costa Rican uh, dwarf purples or something that you put in with dart frogs. Dart frogs, those are perfect size for the dart frogs to eat. And then, like, you know, all of a sudden we got some bigger species in. And all of a sudden that, you know, they may pick off some babies. And then you have some bigger ones going around still doing their job. So, like, there's always a, there's always a good balance. And there's probably a species, you know, for whatever species you're working with. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We can figure it out. Yeah. So go to Port City Pet <laughs> with some fucking awesome isopods, man. Yeah, this is all an ad, actually. I don't it's believe any of this. It's fine. I'll <laughs> it. Yeah, um, it was uh, – yeah, I don't know. I find it interesting. I, I don't get a chance to talk to it a lot on the podcast, so sorry for spewing it. So No, dude, talking up, we're talking about it. We're talking about bioactivity. I love it. I love it. Absolutely love it. And I had a guy in Queensland tell me, uh, not a real friend, just kind of like a guy I reached out to, and uh, he basically was like, uh, listen, if you're – cleanup crew is dying from the aridness then it's too dry for your lizards okay all right and i started to think like well that's fucking stupid they're desert it's it's the outback it's hot as hell and that spiraled me into microclimates and how it's 120 degrees fahrenheit on the surface and then there's a rock and there's a crack in the rock and underneath that rock is a little, little, tiny little tube that goes into like a little chasm. And in that chasm, it's 76 degrees with 80% humidity. Mm. And now that's what I'm trying to replicate. I mean, in tubs, it's difficult, but trying to replicate that because that's the real environment, those microclimates. So I think if I can perfect the microclimates in my home better, I think I can use better isopods, better cleanup crew, and not have them die because it's the desert. Mm. That's my, my, uh, my first with, with microclimates in particular, I know I was talking, I was talking to my buddy Ryan and he keeps his animals outside in South Carolina. And what he keeps outside in South Carolina are, you know, healers. And I was like, wait a second, those things are in the desert. There's no way that those survive out there. He's like, no man, microclimates, dude, like these things actually need humidity. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. And it's something as like someone who keeps snakes and which don't really require humidity corn snakes. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Most many colubrid snakes are, you know, very hardy. 
Um, that's just interesting. It's something that someone, when, when you look at the weather reports, I think a lot of times, you know, when you're starting to keep a species, you look at weather.com. What is it in Jakarta, Indonesia? You're right. looking at the weather in the city. You know, you're not looking at the microclimate in the habitat in which they actually live. So that's a good point. Better, better yeah, just if I can snowball on that one. So when I was at underground working there, uh, a guy called up. He had just bought a, a um, uh, Jayapura. Yeah, I'm going to say Jayapura chondro. And it was an import and it was healthy and everything was fine. But he wanted to know where it came from. And we started to do some digging because we always thought that, you know, Jayapura was like one little section. No, it's a massive territory. And it's like, well, where do you check the temps? Do you check the temp in the city on the coast? Do you check the temp at the research facility in the mountains, you know, where it's, you know, 4,000 feet higher with, you know, different barometric pressure and rainfall and all that. And like, that is again, our evolution of communication where now we have more satellite weather stations. We can really pinpoint, you know, how it is. And uh, I was talking to some other people on, on snakes and stogies about this, where there's apps now for plant people who keep horticulture in the home, so to speak, whether they have a small herb garden in a, you know, a city apartment, or they just have some, you know, tomato plants in their windowsill or whatever. And this apps that they have where you pinpoint the location of the world where the plant happens to come from. And the app will say, okay, it's raining in Jakarta, make it rain in the cage. And my friend Marcus, who worked uh, as a herpetologist at a research facility in Miami, we had sun gazers and we made a 12 by 14 by 10 room specifically for the sun gazers. And we had the ventilation system and the solar glow bulbs. And we got uh, uh, the sawgrass from uh, from the Transvaal and Limpopo districts. And we had planted the African grass in there and we got clay soil and we did it right. And we linked it to the weather app. So if it rained in Pretoria, it rained in the cage. If it got chilly in Pretoria, those ACs kicked on and it got cold that night. And we, that's how we did it. And I think that we can do that on a small scale now because of the technology, because of the communication, because we can get that in those numbers. And I think we should do it. I think we should fucking try it. Yeah, and then and then we see these species also that don't cooperate at all to what we would think is in the wild. And yeah. there's so many species that we we keep a certain way in captivity and have been successful with that like doesn't necessarily make sense. Which, but I works. mean, that's someone had to figure out. Yeah, and it works. Yeah. So that's what we do. How many times did you know the classic debate of oh this you know this carpet python isn't doing well? Well, shove in a tub. Oh no, that's horrible. Just 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 shove in a tub see what happens. And then all of a sudden it does great. You know? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it kind of, if you have a large collection, it kind of boils down to the individual animal. You'll see that there is going to be, you know, there are going to be outliers and there's going to be situations in which you're going to have to employ every single method of husbandry, whether it's tubs or bioactive or something like that. Like I know, uh, Evan, Evan Browder, like he had a, he had a chondro that, would never shed properly put in bioactive it shed i put i put a chondro in a bioactive nice setup and it just wanted to die and uh it would never eat and it did not want to shed correctly so i mean like yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you got to you got to be willing to to try everything. I have a I have a Southern Copperhead that was field collected in South Carolina, and actually, or like South Carolina Northern Georgia border, and uh, the thing never shed right. It didn't matter what I did. I could rain chamber it. I could soak it. I could put little cups of sphagnum moss in there. It didn't matter. The thing shed in pieces like a jigsaw puzzle. And then I put it in a CB70. And a month later, one perfect shed. The temps were the same. The, the, the humidity was the same. I have the little exoterra digital hygrometers with the long cord. So I put the probe in the back with the hygrometer. I put a probe in the front with a hygrometer. The, the, it's the same temps as it was in his cage. It was in a vision cage prior. And I'll, for whatever reason, in that tub, perfect, like a glove. Yeah, you have uh, you have all types of species that just hate humans too, which is, you know, some, sometimes sometimes tubs are good just because they do not want to see you ever. Oh, they yeah. want to see you as little as possible. That's that's the majority of my animals. <laughs> so our i mean i know nobbies are pretty they're pretty well kept but you know or well represented in the hobby right are they, they relatively easy to keep they are if and i'm not trying to sound like i know what i'm doing but they are if you know what you're doing if someone tells you hey do it like this great you're gonna have great success they're very easy to take care of no different than most of the other geckos in the hobby um the problem is is that people are either apprehensive to ask or people are apprehensive to give the information out. So like anybody who ever asks me how to take care of stuff, I will always tell you because I want the animal to thrive and I want you to be happy. You know what I mean? The, 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 uh, yeah, I'm not getting monetary gain out of it, but who cares? The, I'm getting the enjoyment of knowing that the animal is taken care of properly and that you're having fun with it. That's why we do this, you know? Um, I, I lost geckos because people gave me bad information and I tried stuff. <clears throat> One of the things that I'm a big thing of is I do not like transporting babies. I do not like doing it. I don't think it's good. Um, has it been done? Absolutely. Have I done it? Absolutely. But I've lost babies and I'm convinced it's because of stress. You know, they flew across the country. They, they drove six hours in a car, whatever it is. It was just born, man. Like let it live a little before you ship it out. It's not a snake that you can just put in a deli cup and he doesn't know the difference. You know, corn snakes, they're great. They, they don't mind being a deli cup. It's no big deal. Not telling deli cup for six hours, the stress is going to freak them out, man. It's not going to eat. It's not going to drink. It's going to it's going to cower and be like, what the fuck's going on? We don't want that. We want chill. We want relaxed. Let it hunt a little. Let it build its confidence. But other than that, I think they're easy. Is that something that transfers over into everyday keeping as far as like, you know, the people who want to have a lap animal? Yeah, I think if you if you leave them alone for the first few months and, and f limit your exposure to them, that's your best recipe for success. I got geckos that are mean and they'll bite you because they're just, they just don't like you. And then I have other geckos that I can hold my hand and I can pet it no different than a leopard or like a tame fat tail or a crusty. No big deal. Um, I have one gecko that is one of my breeder females. I got her with a regenerated tail. And I think whatever happened to her trauma wise from that tail being dropped, she's the nastiest lizard I've ever had in my entire life. And the rack she's in is actually in my bedroom. And, you know, it's three in the morning. I go up to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water or something. And you'll hear dunk, 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 dunk. And I'll turn the light on. And that's her at the front of the tub like this. Bam. <laughs> what did I do to you? I just walked by. 
you know, but, and, and that does not affect her stress at all. She will eat anything you put in front of her. She will bite you. She just is top dog. So it's obviously individual to the animal. And I also think that it has to do with her being an adult and being confident in her life. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's big enough to defend herself per se. At least she thinks she is. Yeah. No, no fear. Completely fearless. And now are the knobtails the ones, do they bark? Do they make any noises? Yeah, so knobtails give an audible, like a meh, like that. Um, <laughs> it, 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 literally just like that. Um, there's a, <laughs> the other species of knobtails is actually a different genus. We call them uh, barking geckos or Australian thicktail geckos. That's underwoodosaurus. And underwoodosaurus are the actual barking geckos. They bark. They have diff- several different types of bark. Um, they're, quote, unquote, the audible gecko, them and lychees. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So my, I have a, I have two yearling underwatersaurus that I got from Leland Ward at DW Geckos. Kudos to him. Um, they're awesome, dude. They're so relaxed. They don't bark. They don't scream. I mean, you kind of want them to, but at the same time, you don't because that means they're stressed. Um, but they're great pets. They are super low key, super easy. I would highly recommend underwatersaurus as someone who wants a unique, not the norm gecko. And are those going to be similar husbandry as, as a regular knobtail? I would say less. I would say way easier. Um, they require a little more humidity. Um, most people keep them on some kind of, you know, uh, jungly substrate. You know, you could do, you could just do cypress mulch if you want. You could do eco earth. Um, my yearlings, I kept on paper. I keep them still on paper towels. I'll pro- they'll be one year. They're one year this month. They were, they were born last month. So um, I'm probably going to put them onto a tropical substrate of some kind, probably in the next month or two. Um, I, I use paper towels on babies because I want to watch them poo. I want to watch their shed. Um, I can control the humidity better, and it lets them see the prey item better. Um, the roaches can't burrow. Crickets can't climb. It's just sitting on the paper towel. It's a nice white surface. So I do that so they can kind of learn to hunt better. But they're super easy. I mean, you can take care of them no different than a leopard gecko. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, for someone who has a leopard gecko right now trying to upgrade, you know, they're trying to kind of go on to the next thing. Uh, what do they do if they want a knobtail gecko? I mean, how is the husbandry different? Um, I would say be more attentive to it. Let's say you get a brand new, you get a, a two-month-old baby, three-month-old baby, okay? You're going to send them up on paper towels. You're going to miss them more than you think they would need. But you don't want to soak the cage down because it's not a, a it's not a wet gecko. It's not a wet lizard. It's not a tropical lizard. You don't want to develop water blisters or fungus or anything like that. Um, I would say checking on them every day. Just so much as opening the drawer, taking a peek, opening the cage, taking a peek and looking at them. That's fine. I think the problem is, is that a lot of people that keep leopard geckos, a lot of people that keep bearded dragons that are new, when they first get them, they're all excited and they want to check on them all the time. As time goes on, they get a little more lax. You know, it's, oh, man, I, f- I forgot to feed the leopard gecko this week. Eh, his tail's fat. I'll do it tomorrow. You can't do that with these. you you, you got to stick to the regiment. you got to do it, you know, three times a week, four times a week, whatever it is. Misting uh, every three days, two days, whatever it may be. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that's not the best picture to show, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Damn we, it. We, we can talk about that. That's cool. That's a very, nah, very cool disease. I didn't mean to pick up. 
Oh, so those are the the new guys. Um, I kind of want to go from the beginning, though, as far as uh, what the general husband husbandry requirements are for a knobtail gecko. I would say adults would be a minimum of a 16 quart tub. Um, so you figure like 15 inches by 10 inches, ideally. Um, almost all of them are for them for somewhat. I don't want to say subterranean, but they do a lot of underground stuff. So sand and rock and stone is paramount. Um, they do a lot of digging. Uh, most of the time I'll spray them down so that the sand gets wet. And, you know, with sand, when it gets wet, they, they can actually dig tunnels and they'll reset those tunnels every other day, every day, whatever it may be. Um, heat is obviously a need. I would keep the temperatures between 79 and 86 on the hot spot and go down to, say, 71 to 74 on the cold spot. You can go a little cooler at night if you want. Um, and, and a variety of bugs, whatever the, whatever they're willing to eat, you know, um, I do crickets because they eat them. I rock and roll. Um, I do wax worms. If the wax worm is thawed out enough from the refrigerator that it will move, they're very vision based. Um, I do hornworms. Hornworms are awesome. Love hornworms. Um, if, if you're going to be going away for a week, feed them a bunch of hornworms and you'll be fine. You know what I mean? Uh, and I do multivitamin and calcium D3. So I, I mix them, I dust them, and I mean it's very, very similar to leopards. Just pay more attention. And I, I see a lot of people keeping them on sand. I mean that is something that was uh, a total sin. So how does that how does that work? What's the what's the general opinion in like the hobby, the knobtail hobby, as far as that goes? It doesn't matter what hobby it is. Someone will always contradict. Someone will always say sand is horrible. They're going to eat it. They're going to get impacted. They're going to die. Have I seen knobtails that got impacted and died? Absolutely. I've also seen a kid that ate a pound and a half of gravel and they had to do surgery on the kid. Like kids are, kids are dumb sometimes, you know? So in the wild, they live on sand. Their body is designed to digest small amounts of sand. It's going to happen. When they die bomb a bug, when they die bomb a, a spider, when they die bomb another gecko, they're going to get a mouthful of sand. It's going to happen. They push some of it out with their tongue and they swallow some of it. I got a bug on me right now. So I keep mine on sand and some stone and some uh, cork pieces, like uh, cork flats and stuff. And I'll put the cork flat under the sand and like put sand on top of it. So it's not just them on a flat sand surface all the time. Um, and that's why I also like doing babies on paper towels because babies are going to eat more sand than adults because they're learning how to hunt. Now there are certain species that live exclusively on just sand. For example, uh, Levisimus, the pale knobtail, they live in the spinifex roots of the spinifex grass. So you literally have these rolling sand dudes in Southern Australia with spinifex grass coming out in these big clumps. Well, in the morning there's moisture, there's dew, the sand is damp. They'll actually make nooks and crannies in the roots of the spinifex grass, and they'll live in those root systems. Well, anywhere they eat a bug, it's just flat sand. There's no gravel. There's no rock. There's no shale. There's no stone. So they're going to eat sand. It's going to happen. You just need to be mindful of that they're not just on straight sand eating it every single time they eat a bug. Gotcha. And so there's there's no... What are some special concerns as far as um, 
are there respiratory issues? Are there any like common, you know, things that you may encounter? Um, prolapsing is a thing. Um, I don't, I don't force breeding a lot. Um, I kind of let them, if they're not into it, they're not into it. I don't want to stress them out. Um, I've not yet had a male prolapse. Um, I've seen it where it's made some issues in the past. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, have a gecko get a very, very rare illness called pseudobrucophthalmus or PB disease. PB disease is a rare disease that is typically only found in snakes that have bad eye cap situations. Uh, geckos of the Carpidactylidae uh, family and humans, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so geckos in the Carpidactylidae group, they don't have normal eyes like normal geckos. They have a lens cap like a snake. Um, what happens is the gecko will dive bomb a bug. It will get an obstruction in one of its nostrils. So to compensate for the pressure, it'll equal, equal out its, its, um, its sinuses and cause uh, liquid swelling in the eye. Holy so, shit, man. That's it's, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. So if the left nostril is clogged, that, or I'm backwards. If the right nostril is clogged, then the right eye will swell. So that picture you first showed, um, that was my gecko with a gigantic swollen eyeball. <clears throat> I'm sure it's painful. I don't want to anthropomorphize them too much. I'm sure it's caused them massive discomfort, but it doesn't affect the eye at all. It can still see perfectly fine. It can still hunt. It's almost like you taking a shot glass and putting it over your eye. So, all right. So that picture is that picture is at its biggest when it was, that was like six months into the illness. The first picture you showed was right after it ruptured. It finally popped and you can see that it still has some deformity and you see how it's kind of crinkly, kind of like a, a, a crinkly, like cellophane looking. That is the excess membrane of that eye cap still over the good eye. And you can see the pupils are fairly equal in terms of, you know, light transmission and stuff like that. You can see there's really not a lot of swelling. Um, the one side on the on the, the gecko's right, our left, you'll notice the eyebrows slightly higher. Uh, that's because the eye was distressed for so long that it, 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 it just got that shape. Um, but I have yet to meet anyone in North America who has had this disease. Um, it is only with Carpidactyla. It's only in, you know, Australasian geckos. Um, none of my friends in Australia have ever had uh, that disease, but I found out about it from a reptile medical book that was published in Australia that I bought a long time ago. And this is something in which, like, there's no – you can't solve the problem. This is just going to be – it's going to be that size, and not necessarily yeah. this size. It's obviously it has, at its biggest, but right. it's going to exist regardless. So there's two ways to cure it leave it alone and let it pop on its own, which is what I did, or have a veterinarian professionally drain it with a syringe. The problem is when this gecko developed this, it was less than four grams. So I don't know about you, but I'm not about to let a vet, regardless of who they are, stick a needle in a four gram gecko's eyeball. I'm not doing it. It's just not worth it. So I made a conscious decision to basically let it go on its own. And it eventually did pop, you know, the gecko's healthy, the gecko eats, the gecko poops, everything's cool. But the eye was not good for several months. Wow. So 
This is something in which, like, even something significant like that won't keep that animal from eating. No, no, that thing that is that is by far my most vivacious yearling. I, I mean, you, you anything? You take a ball python. It has a bad shed. It has an eye cap. That thing may not eat. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so yeah. that's impressive, and yeah. and it seems as though you are big on letting them like naturally hunt. So always yeah. live bugs, and that doesn't oh, affect. Yeah anything now now what i do is um you gotta remember they stress out easy so you don't want to all right let's say you dump 15 crickets in with your leopard gecko who's in a 20 long okay you have a a naturalistic 20 long setup with your leopard gecko. you throw 15 crickets in there the crickets are going to hide it's going to take that gecko a couple days to eat them all it's going to pace itself the knobtails in the tub they can't run away they can't evade those insects so those insects are going to start to jump on it. They're going to start to climb on it. They're going to freak it out, and it's going to get stressed, and it's not going to eat at all. I've also had geckos where they ate too much because they're opportunistic. They want to eat when they can, when the food is bountiful. So I had one, uh, uh, Levy's Levy's, which is the smooth knobtail. He ate every single cricket that I ever put in front of him. And I started finding these, like, for lack of a better word, owl pellets in the sand. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's not digesting right. He's pooping out, you know cricket parts and and he's not digesting at all what's wrong with him no he was throwing them up because he ate too much because he realized i gotta eat as much as i can because i don't know when food's gonna come back oh that's awesome i love that that's that's the levis levis right is that correct that is a baby levis levis that gecko is probably less than two months old (laughs) that's adorable right yeah so yeah, so it, my gecko was eating, eating, eating because it didn't know what its next meal was, but it ate too much and it yacked up the owl pellet. So I realized, okay, I can't put seven crickets in there. I have to put four and then see what he does. You know, if I put four in there uh, an hour after I feed him, he's just chilling there fat and happy. If I put another cricket in there and he doesn't die bomb it, he's done. So there is, uh, is there any way in which like, if they have too many crickets in there, they just stop eating. You know, there's no, there's no overfeeding or can you get these animals fat? So, so you can get them fat. Um, but the thing is though, before they get fat, they're going to stress and they're not going to eat at all. They're gonna be like, what is going on? I can't get away from these bugs. Get away from me, get away from me, get away from me. And now that stress is increased and now they're going to be, they're not going to be good. It's going to mess with their head too much. Now let's talk a little bit about breeding. Like how long does it take for them to get to maturity? Uh, realistically, about a year and a half, two years for a male, probably two, two and a half years for a female. I don't like to do it like that. I don't care how long it's been. Wait till they're the right size per the species. Um, <clears throat> obviously, a full-grown Levy's Levy's is going to be, what? 20 grams while as a full-grown AMI is going to be like 35 38 grams it's a big difference obviously you cater to the species um but give it time don't rush it you know what i mean give it time you know you, you, wait until everything is in alignment wait till they're the right size wait for the right time of year i tried to do a, a mini cold season one year and it backfired it backfired horrible i dropped my temps real rapid and then I plateaued and then I brought them back up real quick over the course of like maybe 40 days. And all the geckos were like, really? You, did you just do that to us? Really? You want us to breed now? No. How about that? We're taking 2018 off. 
what's it like in comparison to say where they live they live in australia correct like what's the climate like there do they exhibit um, or do they experience different temperatures absolutely i mean it's it, you so australia nobody thinks about this but it's the same size as the united states so even though most of it is hot and arid it's still big and like the tropical rainforests in the cape york peninsula which would we would call say you know portland maine and then you have you know all the way at the bottom uh say Victoria is going to be like uh, Louisiana and Perth is Los Angeles. It, it's wide and you have a vast dynamic to the ecosystems. So in Queensland, where the, the aspers are, it's a lot of stone. It's a lot of rock. It gets very, very hot. And then it gets very, very cold at night. And they have way more humidity because they get breezes coming in off the Pacific and whatever else. So you, those geckos are going to have a lot more humidity than, say, something like an Amy that's in Alice Springs in the middle of the Northern Territory where it's 120 during the day and like 65 at night. So you have those dynamic shifts. Um some I'm eager when I get more species that have a a bigger dynamic of that. I want to do some playing around with like air conditioning and fan units and see if I can really get like the peak of the day and then boom, the drop at the night, you know, it's difficult to to drop temperature 15, 20 degrees in a terrarium. It's hard to do it, you know? So I think that might be one of my next projects in the future to kind of get that down. Isn't it weird, man, that we, we have all these species. I mean, I'm, uh, particularly I'm with animals that are in North America and we obviously here in Pennsylvania, even in Florida, you're seeing large drops in temperature from day to night. Yeah. And we keep all of our animals pretty much constant temperature during the day. And it's like, we haven't really, uh, and if we do that, it fucks everything up. So it's like, that doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Right. And like people think about Florida and, and, yeah, we only get a few cold days a year, but like I went out rabbit hunting last year and I got in my car and I was like, man, it is freaking cold. I turned the car on, it was 31 degrees in South Florida. And I was like, it happens, you know? So yeah, there's the outliers and weather and all that stuff, temperature, humidity, all that. Yeah. We um, just but- didn't come by. That hurricane changed everything for, and it, the hurricane didn't even hit, it didn't actually hit us and it changed so much. So, so breeding, do you need to do anything to, to trigger this? Are you doing temps? Obviously, you said that that big temp drop kind of messed you up, but are you doing any subtle temp drops or anything different? Yeah, I do uh, I do subtle temp drops. Um, there's a beautiful paper that was written. I think uh, – I don't know if Cogger wrote it in 2003, but basically um, following the ovari- ovarian follicle development in females of six different nephro species as well as testicular activity in the same species in males – and obviously, Australia being the Southern Hemisphere, the, the seasons are swapped. So, you know, our summer is their winter and vice versa. So going off of their, going off of their calendar, um, you'll see ovarian follicle development in early September. And then that'll kind of taper down a little bit and then peak up again in October. Because at the peak of October is your male's testicular activity. And then November is your, your temperatures are dynamic at that point into December, the, the, the heat is increasing, so to speak. Um, and that way in late November, early December is your breeding activity. And then usually around say end of December time of the new year, it's at the hottest. Now there's no breeding. Now the temperatures are going to slowly start to taper back when it gets to be a little more, uh, autumn-y. Now you may have a second peak in say the middle of March. 
and just watching the uh, ovarian follicle development correspond with the testicular activity, you can kind of get an idea of the temperatures in which is going to make them want to, you know, bah, bah, bah. know <laughs> is that is that what they do? Is, do they do they make noises? Oh yeah, <laughs> not, not in a good way. Not in a good way. It's usually, <laughs> it's usually a lot of get the hell off me. <laughs> uh, do they also do they exhibit any like neck biting or anything like that that oh, some yeah. lesbians oh, yeah. do? So uh, copulation is done uh, by the male biting the female in the back of the nape, uh, usually from one side or the other, um, and then the female will <clears throat> excuse me. The female will actually turn her body and like show her pelvis to him. They'll go pelvis to pelvis. Obviously, we know what happens after that. Um, breeding is kind of it's exciting because it's breeding, but it's kind of mundane in terms of like. Uh, the showiness of it. Uh, the male will do a lot of peacocking. He'll raise his tail vertical and he'll undulate the tail from side to side. He'll undulate the knob and do a, a mating dance, if you will. Um, and it doesn't last that long if the female is receptive. If the female is not receptive, that is when it gets entertaining because she will mimic the peacocking of a male. And the range of motion that they can undulate their tail is incredible i mean and it goes so far as it's not just this it's like individual quivering almost like a like a black light going off like you know when they are not black light a strobe light excuse me you know when a strobe light goes off and everyone takes their hand and they do this in the strobe light that's what their tail looks like and there's no strobe light it's crazy so you have this 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 boy who's all puffed up like a like an american bull or a, a english bulldog and he's undulating his tail and being like hey baby look at me look at me and she says not tonight, dear. And she does the same thing back. And then all of a sudden now they start to vocalize, they start to nip at each other. And I'm like, Oh, I got to separate. So I watch so for a little bit and then I bring them apart. That is a tale that I would never imagine could do something like that. Yeah. There's actually a, uh, let me see if I'll see if I can find it. I have a great video. Um, I was just uh, going through uh, Instagram and trying to find a video of it. There's one video of like a baby and it's just doing a little wiggle and it's super cute, but it gives you an idea of the, the full range of motion, you know? Um, there's actually it, Okay. It's from Jake Meany. Yeah. That, yeah, probably. Oh, this one's just pissed off at you or pissed oh, off. Yeah. at. You. Is that the one yeah. that, posted that went viral? Oh Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. That's the cutest lizard in the world. I don't care what anyone says. You, you should probably show these people. This is the cutest animal in the world. And the noises it makes is just adorable. Like, look at how big the eyes are. <laughs> yeah. Super duper cute. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, and, th and that was one of my... my the things that my friend Elliot was trying to study when he was in uh, James Cook was the true purpose of the knob. And that's a question that no one really knows to this day. Uh, we know that it's jam packed full of sensory organs, uh, arguably more than a shark's face. Uh, and it makes it kind of sketchy because like we just grab them and pick them up and it's like, Oh, we're touching all these sensory organs. Imagine what's going through their mind, but there's really no reason is that we can tell Oh, there you go. There's there's one. Yeah, that was my This moves the tip of the tail there, just the knob. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. 
Yeah, man, that's my what little buddy. Is. Right? <laughs> Actually, if you go down, uh, I was going to say there's another one. There's one of a, a doing push-ups. It's an Amy eye doing push-ups. And everyone's like, oh, look, it does push-ups. And it attacks the cameraman. And like nobody ever expects that, you know? Oh, yeah, look at this thing. I actually have um, that. That's not even the video, but that's a good video. That's a pale knob tail. That's levisimus. That's the one I was talking about that makes the the burrows in the spinifex roots. Mm-hmm. So that, that animal is probably extremely stressed because they do not come out in daylight. Um, so the, the gecko was probably under something, or they spooked it out from somewhere, and that's what caused that. I actually have uh, one of my female synctus. Uh, was not pleased when I went to like take her out, excuse me. And she made the scariest noise that I've ever heard. I'm going to try and find the video because imagine walking through the bush at night and hearing this sound. And like, it's unlike anything you've ever heard. It's super sketch. Um, Let me see if I can find it real quick. I'm really good about building anticipation and, you know, not, not following through. <laughs> yeah. If anyone isn't watching the podcast on YouTube, you can go check out what we're looking at. Uh, I feel like lately I've been doing a lot more of pulling up things people are talking about. Cause I think it just, you know, obviously yeah. it makes it better for the people watching. So, uh, of, course, of course. So sorry, the folks that are uh, listening to the downloaded version. Well, it just gives them more incentive to watch the live, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I'd say so. Yeah, man, these are these things are, they're cool, man. They're aliens, man. I love it. Yeah, yeah, and just the amount of different colors. I'm just scrolling through Instagram. The amount of different colors and seemingly like kind of shapes, like some are kind of like, for lack of other words, more prickly than others. Some are more smooth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's that's indicative of the species um, or of the genus. Excuse me. Uh, they have what's referred to as tubercles. So tubercles are basically clusters of sharp scales that are formed in that's the one I was looking for. So that is mating for the, that's a male trying to attract a female. Yeah. This is basically twerking for a gecko. It, legit. Imagine if they could actually. Do it. And then like you wait for the end and you watch his little wiggle at the end. It's adorable. <laughs> little did he know we were filming. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah and it's just funny that the female like knows to mimic a male in order to ward off yeah you know, a male that she doesn't want yeah i i actually uh sad to say i had that a lot this year <laughs> <laughs> so do you do you supervise every pairing every pairing yeah um some guys leave them in there overnight i don't like to do it it's not worth it to me if i go the rest of my night if i go the rest of my life and never produce an offspring that's fine I don't want them to fight. I don't want them to stress. I just want them to be happy, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is not the video I was looking for, but this is a good audio. We'll try and turn this up. So this is the largest species of knobtail. This is uh, Nephris amii. Uh, this is what they call the uh, central knobtail. And he was not happy if it, if it loads. Famous last words. Making a fool of myself.
what the hell? <clears throat> and that wasn't even the and, video of Vine. And it seems like they range from like as if you were making a really bad mouth fart into like that one sounds like just a misfire and some degree. I don't know. It's yeah. just a weird noise to even describe. Right? I'm trying to find that one. That one is just so ominous. <laughs> it's so creepy. Like I can't imagine walking through the woods and hearing that. You'd swear it was Sasquatch or something. So how many different species are they or are there in this genera? So it's 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 arguable. Um, some people include underwatersaurus as a knobtail, some don't. Um, it's typically nine to fourteen. So you have subspecies, um, and then you have full actual described species. Um, you you have uh, different complexes as well. So what we would call a prickly complex would be your asper, your amii, and your shei. Those are your more rocky alcoves, barren desert. You know, those are those are the, the the super spiky ones that those are also the only gecko that cannot drop their tail. Um, <clears throat> then you have the Western stuff, which is your bandits. Your bandits are actually two species, Wheeler Eye and Synctus. Uh, the Synctus that, that right oh, slow right there. So the one on the right there, that one in the middle, that's Wheeler Eye. And then. Yeah, you play that. That's Wheeler Eye, and then the other one we just looked at, that was Synctus. So they're very, very similar. Um, and then you have your southern species, or what we would call smooth or pale-skinned. Uh, those are uh, endemic specifically to the southern regions of Australia, and they fill more niche than other species in the area. So most of these geckos will share habitat with one another, while as the ones in the south are the only knobtails found in their area, if that makes any sense. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like a Warshock test, right? So are there, I mean, are these just like, say this, for example, are these, these are all different species here? They're all different species. So the one on the left, that's Levissimus, that's the pale. The one on the bottom, uh, that's Delini, the salts flats or Delene's knobtail. Um, they live in a particular area of desert that's all salt flat lakes. Uh, the one to the right of that, that is a vertebralis, that is the, the, the spinal gecko or the lined gecko, vertical gecko, whatever. And then the one on the far right, that's actually a synctus. That's a banded, but that's a reduced pattern. That's a morph. That's or not even a morph. It's more line bred to have reduced pattern. So how many how many morphs and stuff like that is like hunting morphs or things like that like is morph breeding a a big thing in knobtails? It is. Um, there are certain individuals like Tom Wood, for example. Tom Wood is a phenomenal gecko guy. He's one of the leading gecko guys in the world. Um, Secret Lab geckos, excuse me. Um, the dude produces some beautiful animals. I aspire to have animals as great as him, and I also aspire to have some of his animals one day. Um, he has some line stuff in albino from Pilbarensis that is just crazy. Like, I'm not even a morph guy, but look at that animal. That's just yeah. awesome. This may be – I saw some some animals at Tinley. It was maybe two years ago. That's some probably not, yeah. mm -hmm. I was just like, holy shit, I did not know that this was a thing, and I did not know that I liked it, but now I do. Oh, yeah, man. It's awesome. And like this doesn't really even do it justice to seeing it in person. It's like something that 
and a table full of beautiful geckos is like, holy shit, that's different. Yeah, that's one of those line ones I was talking about. I mean, line is in like breeding line, not physical line. Right. Super cool. Yeah, I mean, he's got some amazing specimens. Amazing. Oh, so he works in New Caledonia stuff as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, I want some of these. These Ractodaculus, the greater rough snouted gecko. The one's yeah. like, I don't know. I'm getting, I'm getting too into the. Once you get into, uh, it's weird when you when you're into snakes and you like rare snakes, then you get geckos. Then you're probably gonna like rare geckos. Of course, it, it sucks. You got to buy a bunch of shit. <laughs> well, actually, now I'm on the hunt for um, the Irangia bentos. Have you seen them? No. I look them up. That's for sure. It's a it's a species of terrestrial gecko from Indonesia, and they call them bent toes because their toes have a bend to them. But the ones that come out of Irian Jaya are like diesel, like big, impressive. They have crazy cryptic eyes and beautiful white lines in the face. Working on it. Working on it. Find it. I'm, I'm going to find that that audio clip. I have it somewhere. I just have so many freaking geckos on my phone. Is this the correct animal right here? Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's yep, cool. that's the one. But see, like that's a small one, man. That's that's very small. I mean, we're talking about like easily longer than your hand. Oh, yep. There's one on a hand right there. Yeah, super cool. That's significant. I think a lot of people think of geckos and they're like, oh, I don't really want this small little thing that fits in the palm of my hand. Right. And then you have this little pissed off thing. Little but right. big for a gecko. Awesome is that though. <laughs> How cool is that thing, man? Yeah, that's super cool. That big white throat. And put that thing in an in an enclosure in which it will like it will blend in to its environment. Right? Uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. Just leaf litter and cork with moss and like, dude, look at that animal's eyes. I'm all about it, man. I'm all about it. And I'm a snake guy, like you said. Like, it's crazy. Are these things eating cockroaches? I would, assume, I would assume they eat, you know, large doobie or discoids or something. But I'm at my wit's end trying to find this thing. So never mind. I did it again. I ruined it. Thanks a lot. Right <laughs> no. uh, so venomous though. I mean, what venomous are you keeping at the moment? Oh, um, I got, I got a little bit of everything. Um, I've got some cobras. I've got some rattlesnakes. I've got some vipers. Um, I have one dog tooth cat snake, which is one of the larger species of boiga. Um, I recently just got that. Um, I have carpets. That doesn't count. That's not venomous. Um, I got a, I got a hodgepodge. My focus right now is going to be on Tremerserus purple maculatus, which is the shore pit viper or the purple spotted pit viper. Um, I've waited a long time for black ones, and I want the melanistic ones where they're just straight jet black, but they're a little bit out of my price range, and they're very very rare in the United States. Um, so I was lucky enough to have. Uh, again, Henry hooked it up, and we did a shipment through Underground, and I got some some purple maculatus through them. So I've got a couple green ones, and I got a bunch of blacks. I got like four blacks. 
So I need a little bit of your help here to figure out what animal we're talking about. But I believe that's it. That's it. So, so they come in different phases. So is this just the, a different phase of the same right. species? So that's, that's your standard phenotype. So that's your normal purple-spotted pit viper. Green and fucking purple, man. Right? Awesome. <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. And I, I regret it, man. I had a snake that looked just like that. I had, I had multiple snakes that looked just like that 15 years ago. And I, I bred them. And I was like, these are dumb. Arboreals are dumb. And I just sold it all. And now I regret it. But I got my I got my, my perps now and, and I'm happy. But they're very, very dynamic. Depending on regional locality is going to be your 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 regional phenotypes, for, for lack of a better word. Um, if you go up into northern Thailand outside like Phuket and stuff, a lot of them are darker black and muddier earth tones. The more south on the Malay Peninsula you go into Malaysia and Singapore, you get black with patterns, you get green with patterns, you get uh, rusty reds with patterns. And then right across the Straits of Malacca into Sumatra, you get a wider dynamic of uh, greens and earth tones. That's not it. That's different. <laughs> but yeah. That's super cool. So are those, um, are those rather easy to keep? Do you need to keep them a different way as far as being arboreal and all that good stuff? You got to keep them. I, I keep them very, very, very similar to chondros. Um, and I leave them alone. They stress. Um, I check them probably every other day I'm in there and, uh, just to make sure they're good. And like, obviously when I clean the cage and stuff, I take them out, I move them and stuff like that. And they're pretty, they're pretty standoffish, but they're not always going to fly across the room and try and murder you. That's a, that's a green one right there. <clears throat> that's actually one of the ones we imported. Yeah. That was actually captive bred by a gentleman in Sumatra. Hmm. So, uh, how often do you need to handle them in order to stimulate them mentally? Um, I try not to stimulate them mentally. Um, I, I, <clears throat> if something is funky, if there's like a massive turd in there or God forbid a regurge, um, I'll go in there and I'll remove the animal and do whatever. But I try and keep cleaning to at least once a week because I want to leave them alone. Um, in the wild, they're hardcore camouflage. They live in the mangrove estuaries uh, where all the brackish water is. And they're feeding majority on lizards, frogs, um, some brackish water fish, uh, and then the occasional rodent that happens its way into the mangroves. So they're used to sitting there, swaying with the tree, swaying with the breeze, and just kind of waiting to be an ambush predator. They have a, a different colored tail, as a called a lure, that they'll use on occasion. Um, I really haven't witnessed a lot of them do it in captivity. I think they know they don't have to. Um, I, I recently have been trying to observe them without going near them. So like, I'll like creep around the corner and like peek my eye in, you know, that makes sense of the, of the rack system that they're in. Um, speaking of the rack system, I had Sean at MPK and Exotics make me my first ever purely venomous rack. I got clear Cambro tubs that are like 12 by 16, I think, something like that. And like, and like 10 inches tall or 12 inches tall. I don't remember. They're arboreal tubs. And, um, and he made it where each drawer, each tub had its own independent key lock. That's cool. So, so is it like a bar that goes across it? How does it lock exactly? No, that was my whole thing is I hate it when you see racks where they have the big metal rod that goes down the middle. They put a padlock on top. I hate that. It's ugly. It's hideous. 
So this is a, a, a tiny little locking mechanism. It's a, basically like a peg and it's recessed into the shelf. So the drawer above it slides over the lock when it's locked. And when it's unlocked, it pops up and the peg sucks inside the shelf and will release yeah. more water drawer to be drawn out. And he did all LED lighting on it and everything. It's awesome. It's awesome. That is really awesome. So are those are those babies being like kind of like we said, amphibians and lizards? I'm sure they probably start on that. Or are they tricky to get started? Uh, they are tricky to get started. Um, let them hunt on their own is my whole thing. They don't want you to come in there with a dead frog or a dead gecko on tweezers and start waving it around. They don't want that. That's not how a gecko is going to be. That's not how they're going to hunt in the wild. So <clears throat> I always try rodents first. I will try fuzzies or rat pinks because they're smaller. They're not going to fight. They're not going to you know retaliate. Um, I'll leave it in there and give it a day or two and see what happens and just kind of work my way from there. If it comes to the point where I have to scent or God forbid feed a frog or a lizard or something, then I'll go that route. Um, I plan on in the future diversifying the diet to be more what they would naturally eat. Um, I'm basically going to freeze a bunch of anoles so I get rid of the parasites, freeze a bunch of house geckos, get rid of the parasites. And I'm going to try and do that later on, but I have a feeling that they're not going to take because it's not because they can't hunt it. It's like that scene in Jurassic Park, like T-Rex doesn't want to be fat. He wants to hunt. It's yeah. kind, of, kind of the same thing. So like anytime I go in there, I've only got two, I've only got two of those species that will literally take anything off the tongs I put in front of them. All the other ones, they don't want nothing to do with it. I, I drop a, a live fuzzy mouse in there and the morning it's gone. Now I know this doesn't matter because like, you know, you don't want to get bit by any venomous snake. Right. But, how potent is the venom? It's potent. Um, it's lethal. People have died. Um, that's not the norm. Uh, the norm is to have intense pain with necrosis at the bite site. Uh, people will typically lose a piece of their hand. They'll lose a finger. Um, they may develop some kind of blood infection because of the hematoxins you know, flowing through the body. Um, the cool thing about them is obviously you want to never free handle. You want to never – you know try and tail them because they're so springboarded, they're arboreal, that the minute you touch that tail tip, wham, it's on you. Um, so everything is single hook and double hook, very, very arboreal. Um, but the antivenin is very, very inexpensive because there are so many bites in Southeast Asia, the Thai Red Cross antivenin is like 80 bucks a vial. So and that's even here in the United States? That's even here in the United States, yeah. Wow. It's, di it's difficult to get because you have to go through all the hoops. A lot of people say that it's very, very easy. It is easy if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, it's a nightmare because you have to find out how to do it. So I'm actually pleased that uh, guys like M-Toxins and stuff, they're actually starting to show people how to get their own antivenin and, uh, and kind of go from there. So is that, I mean, in Florida, you have pretty strict restrictions as far as getting, right. you know, getting your hours and stuff like that. Um, do you have like bite protocols and all that stuff? Oh yeah, I got the works. Um, I had bite protocols that I made personally. I had bite protocols that I bought um, that were kind of like a template, if you will. Um, and I've, I've mixed them together to kind of make what I feel to be the best source of information to be handed off. God forbid something happens. I'm also having uh, that company Cloud Forest Design that makes all the cool labels. Yeah. Uh, I'm having, what's his name, Matt, I think, right? I'm I don't know. I haven't. I should probably get in touch with them. I've seen them everywhere as far as like they have amazing placards for animals cool. and stuff like that. I, uh, I'm having him make me a label for every single venom species I make, but I had him change it up 
and it's going to have the specific, it's going to have two different specific antivenins on the front of it. And on the back, I'm going to put Velcro. So God forbid something happens. I, and I know we joke about this, but I can literally go like, oh shit, contain the animal, assess the damage to myself, assess how I'm going to get to have medical help, rip the Velcro off the cage. Now I have the antivenin in my hand. If I have to Velcro it to my beard or stick it in my shirt or whatever, I have that. So God forbid I go unconscious or I'm unable to talk from paralysis. I can have that antivenin card in my hand and they'll know what to put in me. Now, I guess the very basic question I have to ask is, have you ever been bit, whether dry or otherwise? I have, uh, I have not been bit by anything lethal. We'll put it that way. Um, I don't think I've ever told this story before, but I'll tell this story. Uh, there is a small species of viper, and Justin's gonna be so mad that I'm telling this story on, on not on his show. It is. Um, it is the second hour and fifteenth minute, so um, it's pretty deep in there. It's a gem. It's a hidden gem. Hidden gem, right? So um, I was actually. I won't say I was bit because I wasn't bit. I was envenomated by a very mild viper from South Africa, and it was not pleasant. But when I made the appropriate phone calls to procure antivenin, I was told by the elite of elite antivenin people that I was on my own because there's only six people on record that have ever been bit and there's no antivenin. So I basically had pain in my hand and nerve, nerve pain over my whole body. And then it all went away. That was it. So I don't know if it was a light bite. I mean, it wasn't a bite. It wasn't a bite. I got pricked by a fang. We'll put it that way. And it was just enough to, to do something. Um, but other than that, I've never been. So what do we take from Not that yet. to basically, you know, to tell people who are getting into things, um, you know, what's your lesson learned there? My lesson learned is don't do medical stuff by yourself. That's the first thing you can handle by yourself. We're going to do it. You're going to have to do it. You're at home. You're by yourself. You're going to handle by yourself. Don't get in the habit of handling with it by yourself, being alone at home. But if you have to, make sure people know you're doing it, whether you text your girlfriend or you text your roommate or say, hey, I'm taking stuff out. Or at the same time, um, going back to medical, don't do medical by yourself. If you have to tube an animal, don't do it by yourself. If you have to remove an ICAP, don't do it by yourself. Um, and when you're cleaning a cage, be mindful as to fangs being dropped in the substrate. We actually had, I had a girl who's training with me for many, many years and she always would be barefoot in my friend's venomous room. And we're like, we told her, stop going barefoot, wear shoes. There are fangs, they fall out, they're in the feces, they naturally shed them just out of the front of their mouth. There will be fangs on the floor. And she never listened. So we had a really, really big Eastern Diamondback fan, uh, fang that we cleaned off with alcohol and bleached it and made it look all pretty. And I put it on the carpet. And I said, hey, come in here. Let me show you something. And she walks in. And I made sure she wasn't going to step on it. And we were talking, talking, talking. I said, oh, my God, look at the floor. How many times I got to tell you not to come in here barefoot? And she goes, oh, my God, I could have stepped on that. Oh, my God. Oh, look, there's another one. <sighs> <laughs> you only put one on the floor so that just goes to show you you must be mindful and and i'm i'm a very very big component on 
burning the routine in your mind so that it's literally second nature. Um, I'm huge on etiquette and technique. Um, etiquette and technique will keep you alive and venomous. There's never a reason to touch the animal. There's never a reason to do medicinal stuff by yourself. And be mindful of what you're doing and how you're doing it. Don't get complacent. If, if you are listening to a podcast while you're cleaning venomous and you're distracted because you're laughing at the jokes, don't do that. Don't. Because the minute you turn your back, you could have a problem. I think that's really the one thing that gets me as far as if you've been keeping non-venomous long enough, you realize when you get bit, when you don't get bit, whatever, that it's not a big deal. But even your mood, just whatever's going on in your day, I mean, all that kind of affects how you approach your animals, you approach your collection, yeah. which is why like, I have a lot of respect for the guys who are able to do day in, day out venomous and keep that attention and, and stuff yeah. like that because <clears throat> shit, man. I mean, you got to be careful. Yeah. And I, I never, I never tell anyone. And in fact, I don't, I don't think I've told any of my other friends about my minor, minor, envenomation. I mean, the girl that got bit by the hog nose and her whole arm swelled up, that was way worse than what I went through. The only difference is hers was a colubrid and that gets played with all the time. Mine was an actual species of viper as mild as it was. And I didn't get bit. That was the whole thing is that this was not a wham envenomation. This was a fluke where my hand was in the wrong spot and I got pricked. So. Yeah, I think it's a, uh... You know, you don't want any foreign substance in your body. I mean, it doesn't matter if you think it's a uh, boyega and it's not really a big deal. It may be a big deal for you. You know, Bill yeah. Host, who envenomated himself with venom constantly, you know, his worst bite was a Gila. And Gila's, I mean, technically, I mean, most people would say not really the biggest deal. And that was the bite he almost died from. So it's like... Oh. You got to be careful with everything. Treat everything as if it's uh, life-threatening. Yeah, of course. And one of the biggest things, I talk to Justin all the time because me, Justin, and Nipper are in like a little group chat and we talk about Boiga all the time because we're Boiga fans. And the people on Instagram free-handling Boiga, like, don't do that. Like, it's gaping. It's showing you its fangs. It's showing you that it has the potential to do you harm in defense. And you're like, oh my God, let's take a selfie. Like, this is great. No, bad idea. And they're like, oh, but it's rear fang. I don't care if it's rear fang. It's going to rot your blood. That's what's going to happen. It's going to disintegrate your cells, all your cells. You know what I'm saying? It's going to eat away at the bone and the tissue. It's horrible venom. And the other thing too is we look at like LD50s and stuff. Everything is subcutaneous. Well, what if it nicks a capillary? What if it nicks a vein? You know, if I take one cc of Coca-Cola and inject it in a vein, there's a good chance I'm going to die. And that's only Coca-Cola. You know what I'm saying? Imagine something that's designed to break things down. So, like, I I don't condone free handling in the least bit. Um, I've said it before on plenty of other podcasts. I have taken some pictures that I regret that were not for social media. It was It was what Henry and I call manual manipulation. We're not free handling. We're not playing with it. We're not showing off. It was like, I'm going to pick this animal up because I'm learning how this animal's working and I want to get a real close look. And I can't do that on a hook three and a half, four feet away from it. So 
I don't condone free handling, but I do condone manual manipulation. You should be able to know how to handle the animal. God forbid you lose your hook. Yeah. And I think there, I mean, there's obviously animals that condone tailing, correct? What's that? There's, there's definitely animals or species that condone tailing, correct? Meaning like your hands can't always be completely off. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, technically I know guys that have never tailed a single snake in their life and they're the safest ones because they're far away. You know what I mean? They double hook everything. They use trap boxes for everything. Yes. I've tailed taipans. I've tailed mambas, but it was because it was the easiest way for me to be safe at the time. If I had used two hooks, it would have been a horrible scenario, you know, and I, I trained for this from multiple different mentors over multiple different years to learn how to use those techniques and that etiquette properly. So the animal is completely calm. Like a lot of people don't realize is when you tail a snake, you're not grabbing its tail. You're letting it grab you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like one thing that we always talk about with tailing is you're cradling the tail in your palm, right? Your fingers are, your fingers are wrapped around the snake, but you're not squeezing. You're letting the snake squeeze you. Its tail has curved around your hand, which is why it's paramount to never have a watch or bracelets because all of a sudden the tail goes in that watch band and now you're tethered. And now you try and abort and ditch and eject from the situation and you can't because you're, you're tied to the snake. So things like that, you know, you've got to work with. And there are certain species like those tremorsors like we just looked at. You do not tell that animal. It doesn't, I don't care if it's a three-foot adult and it's fat and obese and it's going to die from eating cheeseburgers. It still has full potential to do a complete 360 and whack you on the nose from however far away it is. It's not worth it. Yeah. And now I guess a parting, a parting word as far as uh, venomous goes and all that stuff like uh... – what do you, if someone's listening and they're trying to look to get into Venomous, regardless of what state in PA, you don't need to do anything, right? You can just go to Hamburg and get a snake. Uh, in Florida, there's some things to do, but what can someone who's interested, I mean, where can they look out and see if it's for them? Um, watching the Facebook groups is a big thing. If it looks wrong to you, it probably is. Um, there are several mentor groups that you can join. Uh, 80, 90% of the information is good. You're always going to have some information that's like, don't, I wouldn't do that. Um, but look at the people, have multiple mentors, first of all. Don't just learn from one person. Have multiple opinions, multiple techniques. There's no perfect way to do this. Everyone's going to have their own way of doing it. And if you learn all those different ways or you expose yourself to all those different ways, you're just making yourself a better handler. You're making yourself a better keeper. So, I would say first thing is have a mentor, have multiple mentors, learn from all of them and compile all of their knowledge together to develop your own type of technique or your own way of doing things. And then at the same time, don't just assume that, oh, I've done it a hundred times like this, that on that hundred and first time, it's going to go that way. It'll never go that way. Something will happen. Something will always change. Something will always happen diversify the animals you're working with. If you're working with the same two cobras every Tuesday for three years, you've got to change it up because those snakes are used to you. They know you. They know the, the owner. They know the people that walk by. They know the Labrador that happens to walk by with the Frisbee every day at noon because he wants to go play Frisbee. Like They know those things. They learn those things. The smells, everything from the barometric pressure to what your face looks like, they're going to learn those things. 
and you got to diversify that. Don't don't get stagnant. Right on. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, where can they reach you? Um, <laughs> at knobtails.ig on Instagram. That's the Knobtails page. The pictures are all geckos. Uh, I post some snake stuff on the um, story mode. Uh, if you want to talk about cigars and snakes, we have a live show that we do once a week called Snakes and Stogies. You can find that on the Herbert Culture Network or at Palmetto Coast Exotics YouTube channel. That's Justin Smith's Palmetto Coast Exotics. Um, and then I have a personal page that's mostly just snakes and guns and cigars. It's a dude page, and uh, that's at Phil the Wolf. Bam, you heard it. All right, Phil. Uh, as far as me, uh, Port City Pythons or Port City Pet everywhere. Uh, PortCityPet.com, Isopod, Snakes, all that good stuff. Check out Snake Discovery, of course, YouTube and uh instagram and all the places in which you could find them and uh phil man thank you so much this is a great podcast uh, sorry i rambled too much but i love being on here man i really appreciate it no i mean the rambling is the intent of the of the whole program <laughs> i appreciate it's good. it it's good and stuff. uh yeah everyone go check out uh snakes and stogies and her pediculture yeah. uh, everything everything that justin's putting out as well as uh phil i know you have a hand in that just because you know it seems as though they have a group of like really great friends and people who just believe in each other. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, man. Between Justin and, and Billy Hunt from Ubami Reptiles and, you know, Jacob Bratz on the, on the THP, man, like these guys are the best. I can't, I can't ask for better friends, Joe included. Thanks, man. We will uh, catch you all next week. <laughs>